Welcome to Season 4 of Plenary Session. I'm Dr. Vinay Prasad, I'm an Associate Professor of Epidemiology and Biostatistics, and I'm a practicing hemonk doc here at UCSF. If you like this podcast, follow us on Twitter, email us at plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com, and you can back us at patreon.com. And with that, let's start the show. I want to talk about my new Substack post. It's out now. It's entitled, Will Science Do a Better Job Post-COVID-19? I'm going to put a link to it down below and I'll show it right here on the screen. But before I talk about Will Science Do Better Post-COVID-19, I got to talk about something that appeared in the news today, Dr. Paul Offit. Paul Offit is a proponent of vaccination. He is, in fact, the director of the Vaccine Education Center at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. There are no greater proponents for vaccination than Dr. Paul Offit. And here's what it reports in The Atlantic. It says, Dr. Offit, quote, told me that getting boosted would not be worth the risk for the average healthy 17-year-old boy, end quote. Quote, Offit advised his own son, who was in his 20s, not to get a third dose, end quote. Even with Omicron's ability to sidestep some of the protection vaccines provide, Offit says he believes that his son is well protected against serious illness with two shots and a third just isn't necessary. That is a staggering quote by a guy who has devoted his life, his career, towards the promotion of safe and effective vaccines. This gentleman is on record as saying that he doesn't think his own son should get a booster. That really should raise serious alarm bells across the community. We've had two officials in the FDA drug products resign. We've had the director and the deputy director. Now you have Paul Offit, a man whose credentials for vaccination cannot be questioned. He invented a vaccine himself. He literally invented a vaccine himself. He's written books about people who are great vaccinators. And this gentleman is saying the risk-benefit profile at this age for boys is question mark, question mark, question mark. And I've written about that in my Substack. I've been saying that since June in pieces in MedPage Today, et cetera, and pieces in Stat on my website, et cetera. Paul Offit is good to say this, and I think it reflects a broader conversation that needs to be had about how many shots is optimal, why is the UK and the US different, what is the best strategy going forward, what is the risk-benefit profile. Not of shot one, I think that to me is less debatable. Shots two and shots three, particularly for men between certain ages who have never had COVID-19. I think that's the question mark. And it is important to have that debate because we want to vaccinate people as safely as possible. We don't want to promote things that are unsafe. And if you do that out of expediency, out of putting forth some White House plan in the hope that you will have some short-term gain in curbing cases, I suspect you will pay a deep long-term price if you make any error. And I think that the administration really needs to ask themselves, what the heck are you doing? You've got two people, senior people at FDA vaccine products resign. You got Paul Offit going against you in the popular press. You need to reconsider your strategy. I think it's already been a boondoggle and it's only gonna get worse if they double down on it. Back to science. So the topic of my post was really about will science do better? And I'm afraid that I had some sobering news, which was that science wasn't doing that great before. Vink Morthy, a colleague of mine at University of Michigan, a cardiologist, he said that, and he clarified his remarks to me on the phone recently, he said that, you know, 
science has definitely not done well with SARS-CoV-2. And I wrote a piece that basically argued, well, it wasn't doing that well before. There are a lot of problems in science. And then he called me to say that, you know, his point wasn't that that isn't true. He actually agrees that these problems are true and they've been there for quite some while. He said that, you know, people, the average person wasn't as aware of those problems. And now their trust, the average person's trust in the quote unquote science or the quote unquote expert has diminished greatly and it will continue to erode post COVID-19. I worry about that. I also think COVID-19 has done something that may have existed in some pockets of science before, where there was a pairing of science and politics, where some issues in science were universally with one political party or the other. But COVID-19 has amplified that and made it much, much worse. So that masking young kids and the data around that or boosters or, you know, a host of number of issues, lockdown, shelter in place, these sorts of things are, for better or worse, wedded to political parties. And so when science goes back and tries to assess whether or not, quote unquote, lockdowns worked or were worth it, and by worked, I mean, did they slow the spread of the virus and were worth it? Did they, were they offset by greater harms in the short or long term? I think it will be very difficult for science to disambiguate that. And you might even get two different literatures, a literature supportive of it with certain political cheerleaders and a literature that shows the exact opposite conclusion with different political cheerleaders. And that to me would be a worst case scenario, but it appears that's already happening out of our hands. I would never have thought that particular pills would have become polarized, but they did. I would never have thought that one political party would favor a medication without good data and the other political party would favor a non-pharmaceutical intervention for years on end without good data. Um, but, but that's really what's happened. So in this piece, I wanted to explore science, I think more broadly, and to talk about it a little bit. You know, what really is science? Um, science is often presented, I think, in schools as if it was a collection of facts about the world. We learn about astronomy and the body, etc. But science, when you actually do it and do it for a lot of time and a lot of years and you publish a few hundred papers, as in my case, um, you'll see it's very different. It's not a set of facts. It's a way of thinking about the world and it's a way of reducing uncertainty on issues where there is uncertainty. So for instance, you want to answer something, you try to think about it in a rigorous, impartial way. You approach issues ideally without preconceived notions. Even if you've heard one thing or the other, you don't bring that baggage to the issue. First, I think you have to survey the literature very broadly, see what's out there, see what people think, and see what evidence supports what people think. Next, I think you need to think about what are the holes in the existing evidence. And then you think about what experiments, what could you do? either experimentally or even observationally to reduce the uncertainty in those spaces. What can you contribute? How can you help clarify between different hypotheses that try to explain the same observable facts? And that's what science is. It is a method, largely experimental. Experimental science, I think, is the gold standard when it comes to causal claims about what makes us better or worse, what helps societies. The more you can experiment prospectively, the better off you are. Then you introduce problems. How do you experiment? And of course, when it comes to human beings and medicine, you know, randomization is a great tool. It's a great tool. Why? Because when you randomly create two groups of people, the outcome of interest that you're looking at, whatever that outcome is, should have a similar distribution in those two groups of people. If you were to do nothing, if, if you just were to have an inert intervention, have a similar distribution. Now you start to do something, you can look to see, is the distribution of outcomes different? And that can't be due to a difference in the types of people. It's got to be due to what you're doing because you randomly put them in those groups in the first place. And that's very different than non-randomized studies. 
you know, whatever the non-randomized studies, people who chose to do, you insert the thing, people who chose to eat a healthy diet or wear a mask or whatever, they had whatever better outcome. You need to separate the doing that thing from the type of person who would have done that. And those, that's a very tricky business. It's often not able to be done with existing data sets because you don't know all the other characteristics of the person that might have affected that choice. And when it comes in medicine, there's a classic problem, which is confounding by indication, which is that the doctor is picking and choosing who to deploy therapies in based on the sort of eyeball test. Does this look like the kind of person who can tolerate this or do well from this? And that leads to, I think, many, many flawed observational studies in biomedicine. And you don't have to believe me, there are broad empirical analyses of this. Most recently, I think Rahul Banerjee and I wrote the editorial in a JAMA Network open paper of a comparison of observational and randomized control trials on the same clinical questions in oncology, which found massive discordance. Many often, many times, the results went in different ways. And they tended to have a certain type of bias, which was that observational evidence tended to suggest that more things worked and they worked well. And then randomized evidence was sobering. It was more the dunking in cold water fewer things worked. When observational studies were negative, randomized trials more often confirmed that, and you can read our editorial. What's my point here? My point here is that science has always been a method of knowing, a method of adjudicating uncertainty. If you have a strong preconceived notion, if you are a true believer, you are. it's very difficult for you to do it. You will read the literature, I think, with your own preconceived notions, and then you won't be able to conduct the studies you need to conduct. Throughout this pandemic, we've seen over and over true believers say, well, you can't study the thing that I think helps. Why? Because the thing that I think helps is a parachute. It would be wrong to deprive some group of people access to this thing I think helps. But the truth is that the thing you think helps usually doesn't help that much. It has a modest to marginal effect. And the only way to separate your hope and your wishful thinking from the true effect is randomization. So you really ought to randomize. And this cuts both ways. You know, there, there are elements of that, I think, on both political sides. However, it has surprised me a little bit more from one side than the other because one side tends to be enriched in the academy. And so I was surprised to see so many people who I consider to be smart people accept on face value things that are hitherto bold propositions. For instance, when the American Academy of Pediatrics went beyond the World Health Organization and the World Health Organization says, don't mask kids under six, and they said, we're gonna do it for two, I would think more people would say, hmm, what's the evidence for this? Or could we run such a study to reduce the uncertainty? But they didn't. They didn't say that. And that's what surprised me about this. The more I reflected about COVID-19, I thought that, you know, one of the deficiencies, I think, was a failure to conduct better studies. Another deficiency was a very unique way in which we demonized people. You know, and I point out um, John Unides, you know, pre-pandemic, there's nobody who is more, I think, heralded in science than John. Thousand publications under his belt. The man is accruing citations at a pace that will soon put him, I suspect, as the most cited scientist in human history. He's been routinely vindicated on topics that people were surprised. For instance, if you go back and look one year before the Wall Street journal expose on Theranos, you'll find John's paper in JAMA on Theranos. And he was question mark, question mark about Theranos. He, of course, was greatly vindicated. Years before anyone else started to worry about reproducibility, you'll find John's paper, Why Most Published Research is False, talking about these issues, talking about the core issues in the reproducibility crisis. John has distinguished himself in that way time and time again of being one step ahead of his peers. And then when it comes to COVID-19, where this guy's immediate reaction, and I think um, informed by his appraisal of the evidence at the time, was that 
I think the bottom line conclusion he felt was captured in the stat piece on March 17th, 2020, which was that we should worry that like the elephant scared of the mouse, we fall off a cliff trying to evade it. In other words, that even though SARS-CoV-2 I think is a real threat, and I think he felt so at the time as well, that um, it is possible to have interventions that under some circumstances are worse than the threat you're facing. That's true in any walk of life. And he was just suggesting we might want to think about that. He also said some things that were universally, I think, necessary that nobody ever did, which is we should do a zero prevalence run by the CDC of a group of people randomly picked across this country and repeat that at fixed intervals so we actually get a sense of how much this pandemic is spreading outside of the quote unquote documented cases because zero prevalence captures the true denominator. If we had that, we'd actually be able to know things like in the United States, you know, what's how do you compare myocarditis post-vaccine from myocarditis post-infection? The United Kingdom, they have a comparison and it actually shows under some scenarios that myocarditis post-vaccine was higher, dose two, dose three, Pfizer, dose one, dose two, Moderna. I believe there's a prior video on this podcast talking about that UK paper in Nature Medicine. But, and I'm talking about men under 40, but it didn't use a seroprevalence denominator. The Germans in their paper on kids and their outcomes, they did use a seroprevalence denominator. If we had a seroprevalence denominator, we'd be able to say with a lot greater precision, how serious is this illness? How has it changed over time? What is the IFR? How has that changed over time from first wave to second wave to where we are now with Omicron? We would really be able to say that right now, all of the studies I read use some inferior denominator, which is people who've presented or tested positive, which is not the same as people who've had it and didn't go seek testing. So John was absolutely right in his assessment of what evidence need to be gathered. But the point in my essay that I make is that how did this guy who is literally one of the best scientists went from the best scientist to the most demonized scientist within a matter of four or five weeks? It was astonishing. And now when people read his work, you know, he's written some umbrella reviews of all of the papers on IFR, infection fatality rate. And in his umbrella review, if you actually read this paper, you will see, you know, his brain is still working well. He's got a number of astute points, but people are not reading the paper. They just anchored on that he bad, others good, ergo anything he say bad. I mean, it's very primitive and it's not really what I have thought of as science. It's not what I think of the academy. Um, and I've talked a little bit about the masking literature. I think that's a problem. I've talked a little bit about parachutes. I think that's a problem. You know, I think the way in which we treated kids is a particular place in which science, I really think failed because, you know, we've just continually placed more and more restrictions on children. Just today, I hear Berkeley uh, Unified School District, a place with 90 plus percent vaccine rates has mandated N95 or equivalents in children in school. And that troubles me in several ways. One, I'm not even sure what it means to have an N95 in those ages because an N95 is a certain type of validation of a filter. That means it can filter a certain amount of particles. That means somebody had to run some study to see how many particles were filtered. But I'm pretty sure they're not running those studies in five-year-olds or six-year-olds in Berkeley playing in a class. These are studies run on, on adults who are participating and wearing this with a certain grade of fit. And so whether or not this is even, quote unquote, an N95 equivalent as it's worn by children, question mark, question mark, question mark. But also the virtue of a policy that if I, by fiat, set this policy that will make it better for these kids, incredibly dubious to do that, to prove that you need cluster randomized control trials because it's more than just the mask. It's whether or not they wear it and how much people struggle with, you know, pulling it aside to scratch their nose or trying to drink or taking it off or compliance. I mean, this is all baked into the policy equation. Only a cluster randomized trial can show that we have no such study and yet we escalate. In fact, we didn't do the right trials that we needed to for cloth masking kids. 
and now we're escalating with N95s. Vaccination policy, I think, is a great example. I think this Paul Offit example fits so nicely. Here you have a guy whose credentials on vaccine science, I mean, it cannot be questioned. There's nobody out there who can say Paul Offit, you know, he's he's got an anti-vax bent in him. The man doesn't have an anti-vax bone in his body. And even he's telling his own son, be cautious with dose three, and I wouldn't advise it. That's got to give people some pause. I don't know what else it's going to take for people to say, okay, maybe we got this wrong. And by we, I mean, there is a group of people who have, I think, foolishly come to conflate that if a little vaccine is good, a lot of vaccine is better. And so we ought to give as many boosters as we can to as many people as we can and have as low a regulatory hurdle as possible to do that. EUA, mean geometric antibody titer against benchmark historical control. That's good enough for me. It's good enough for me. And heck, even some of them say, even when the trials fail to meet that modest endpoint, they say, maybe we should prescribe this off-label. I've heard that for the zero, or not zero, but for our early age to four-year-old study where the mean geometric mean titer was not met by two doses, and now Pfizer's adding the third. People are saying, maybe we should get ahead of the data here. That, to me, is really, really bold. Unbelievable, really. I've never seen such a thing. An appetite for risk, an appetite for uncertainty. At an age like that, I just don't know what to say. And so our vaccine policy, I think, has become very, very wedded to party and very absolute and has lost the middle ground, the reasonable, which is that, yeah, we ought to do it insofar as it makes people better. It is a great good. Yes. And of course, you have to focus on older people rather than younger people, just because the way in which this virus exerts its toll. But of course, you need credible data and the more credible data, the better. And as you slide down the risk gradient, you need even better data. You don't need less data. You need more data. Actually, you need a bigger random control trial to have some power to find something. You can go back and listen to the interview I did with John where he called some of these randomized trials so small they're more of a ritual than they are an evidence generation machine. But then I started thinking about pre-COVID and I really thought hard about pre-COVID and I realized that a lot of the core failings were there but they were a little bit different. You see, we did have an appetite for debuting and wide-scale delivery of products that have very little evidence or strategies very little evidence um, but they often were pharmaceutical products where somebody stood to make a lot of money and the people who turned a blind eye to the evidence generation happened to be being paid by those companies. And that was something that I'd railed about in two books, etc. But I also noticed there's another place where when it comes to, there's some places where we just never thought very critically. I think the cancer screening place has been such an example over a quarter century. We've moved from the idea that anyone who didn't pursue you know, sort of wide blanket recommendations for mommography, you know, there's a, are, are mistaken. And there was the old American Cancer Society guideline that said if a woman had, hadn't had a mammogram, she needs more than her breasts examined. That was literally the ad slogan by the American Cancer Society. That was uninformative fear-mongering, really fear-mongering pre-COVID. It existed and it was used to encourage people to participate in mammographic screening. Then, of course, guidelines shifted over time. We went from yearly 40 to 50 to every other year. And it took a lot of time for people to start to appreciate overdiagnosis and competing risks and having a more nuanced conversation about it. And now I think we've actually reached a better place on screening than we were when I started in medicine in 2005. The better place is that we can actually have some dialogue about the pros and cons of screening. It's not an unalloyed good. And yet, 
you know, that's an example that I think is akin to a lot of the challenges we face in COVID-19. I also thought about the Nelson trial. This is a great study. It's a study of CT screening for lung cancer where the all-cause mortality, and you can read my Substack post, it is literally indistinguishable between these two arms. In other words, you got all these people, they were very sick and vulnerable, and you did something to them, and you found a lot of cancer, and you took them to surgery, but at the end of the day, there ain't no more people alive who you did it in than the people you didn't do it in. And so that to me should be sobering, which is that you didn't improve the thing that people come to you to improve, which is how much time do I got, Doc? And you still move forward with blanket population recommendations. And that to me is sort of a, is very similar to the cognitive biases we see in COVID-19, which is that, boy, you know, human beings are smart, we're clever, we're capable, this ought to work. Even though we don't have robust evidence that it does work, maybe we ought to give it a shot. Um, I talked a little bit about, you know, recent years, we've changed screening guidelines based on modeling rather than randomized control trials. And that is also, I think, reminiscent of COVID, where we're putting greater and greater stock in a type of science that is very malleable. I mean, a model is, to some degree, a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's as good as whatever the inputs are that you put into it, and I get to pick the inputs, and I also happen to have a vested interest in what outcome you provide. And so I think models are, 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 are prone to distortion. The interview with John, I went back and listened again recently, and he made an interesting point that we need some sort of broad standards for modeling, maybe some external validation, maybe before you run your model, you have to get somebody to sign off on parts of it so we can all agree. So the more I reflected on it, I realized that COVID-19 didn't, it didn't, it didn't bring out new things in science that never existed. It merely exacerbated problems that existed in science, wishful thinking that existed in science, lack of evidence generation. It put it on steroids, obviously. There were more people interested in this topic than ever before. We put a lot of people participating in these debates who didn't have biomedical background and what's the difference. You know, if you're an engineer, you live in a walk of life where so much of your life is manageable if you know the parts to it. They know how the computer works. They know how the phone works. They know how to fix it. But the body is much more complex than that. And human societies and systems are much more complex. And even if you think you know how the parts work, you often need empirical evidence that the policy itself works. And so you had a juxtaposition. You had, you know, p particle filter scientists saying mask work, hashtag masks work. And the only people who run cluster randomized trials for a living saying, mm, you better run a cluster randomized trial. You want to know that for sure. And then you ran a couple. We ran one in Bangladesh that has a result and cloth failed and surgical one, but it was true under a very unique set of circumstances, a population that was rural, that had no preexisting immunity, that had no vaccination. Does that apply to other ages and populations? And Jean Noble, in a recent interview I did on this podcast, she talks about extrapolation, which is another sort of classic problem in biomedicine that's less so, I think, in other fields. So, you know, you had that. You had the political dimension, and that was a dimension that was more than I had seen before. Because, you know, to some degree, it was there before, because people who were right of center were probably more pro-business and much more likely to embrace novel, costly technology with uncertain evidence, to some degree. But people who left of center also were the same. You know, it wasn't that different. There wasn't that much of a difference between the political parties and their views on drug and device adoption. And proof of that is that many of the legislations that govern U.S. Food and Drug Administration that progressively lowered the evidentiary bar over the last quarter century were bipartisan legislation that was passed under a Republican president and Democratic president, and they continually lowered the bar because the lobbyists were just more powerful than the people who would push back on lobbying in the biopharmaceutical space. So that was there, but it wasn't as polarized. I've never seen anything like it. So going forward, it really made me reflect. The root deficiencies, I think, in this space are, you know, 
not collecting data when you should collect data. That's always a failure. The more you collect data, the better. The more you collect data for data purposes. I'm not talking about data that people are given and then they're tempted to act upon it because that can lead to some bad decisions. But I'm talking about population surveillance, the, the random testing that John called for that the CDC should have done. That kind of testing was done in the UK to some degree and it helped them clarify whether or not they want to vaccinate healthy kids. And right now from five to 11, they're holding off on it. Right now, as of this moment, they're holding off on it in part based because they have zero prevalence data. We don't have that good data, as good data as they do. Um, so collecting more data like that by central agencies, that would have been good. I think the other problem would be running, the other challenge is running more experiments, realizing that sometimes you just don't know the answer. You don't know the answer. You gotta run more cluster randomized trials and reduce the uncertainty. That was something we weren't doing that good before when they ran, you know, Nelson RCT and NLST. And the answer, I hate to tell you lung cancer screening proponents, the answer is a mega randomized control trial for lung cancer screening that's powered for all cause mortality. The answer isn't getting the USPSTF to green light you and get it covered and build your quality metrics. That's not the answer. The answer is a bigger randomized control trial. You didn't call for that. And guess what? We didn't call that for that for masking. We didn't call for that for therapeutics. If it weren't for the UK recovery investigators bailing us out on therapeutics, we'd be up, we'd be up a creek, a creek, so to speak. I don't want to say what kind of creek, but you know what kind of creek we'd be up because if it weren't for them running that trial, we wouldn't have a lot of good evidence. They were running big randomized control trials. Good for them. Thank goodness. These problems have existed. What was different is that it had much more moralizing than I've heard before, but to some degree in cancer screening, I had heard a bit of moralizing. You know, Gil Welsh was a bad guy and Barry Kramer was a bad guy. Those are people who highlighted the harms of overdiagnosis in the past when it was unpopular. Um, but this moralizing was a whole nother degree. And then the political tribalism was a whole nother de degree. And I think for me, as somebody who, you know, had always identified as a progressive, why? Because I do believe a society should do more to help the people who are the least fortunate through no fault of their own, but luck of birth and do more to provide a fair and egalitarian um, and equal playing field, at least equ equalize the opportunity. Um, and we fail in so many ways from early childhood education to unequal programs in college, et cetera. And a lot of our failure is on the early side of life. That's the real root of failure. And then for me to see progressives who should care about that issue pretty much get on the wrong side of all of the issues around restrictions on children, on schools and closing schools and remote schools, and they still keep getting on the wrong side of these issues. That has been very disappointing because it is literally promoting policies that sabotage the values you purport to champion. And in fact, not only are they're not just neutral to the values you claim to champion, they are directly contradictory to the values you claim to champion. And you do not see that you may in part be motivated by fear and irrationality. Okay, so this was a long-winded discussion, and I hope I've weaved together all the concepts, but I won't know for sure until I actually go back and listen to what I said. So if I, if I weave together them sensibly. But my general theme and the general point of this broad dialogue is that COVID-19 did represent a failure of science. That's for sure. And people talk about the science TM and they're right to lampoon it because it is a, I think, catastrophic failure. It's a failure of evidence generation. It's a failure of acknowledging uncertainty. It's a failure of policy. Uh, it's short-sighted policy, the failure of communication. It's a failure of sampling. It's a failure of even keeping track of what we're dealing with. That failure is owned by lots of people and people who said they were going to help save us and make 2021 better than 2020, they didn't do any such thing. In fact, they might've even bungled it even harder. Um, and because they abandoned these principles and the principles of science that they abandoned were 
running randomized control trials, collecting evidence, hearing views of people who disagree with you, thinking about trade-offs and complex policy decisions. But the point I want to make is we had been abandoning that for some time. We weren't perfect with that. We were always doing that. Vink Morthy's point is now the public has seen us with our clothes off. They know what we're all about, and they're going to lose all out of trust in us. And I think he's right. I think he's spot on. And what I worry is that have we entered some sort of death spiral? Has science literally entered the final death spiral? And what would the death spiral look like? It would look like more and more issues become political. You know, I think climate science was an early political issue. Um, these COVID issues are all political, but where will it stop? Will blood pressure medicines become political? Will cancer drugs become political? Will they have a right-left valence to devices versus drugs? As more and more things become political, and, and there's no reason why they, 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 that they'll be spared from the political machine. Politics is a way of creating tribes. It is interesting that there are two groups of political parties that are almost always sort of in dynamic and, and balanced relatively because they're constantly changing their platforms a little bit to kind of keep that equal market share. And political parties to some degree exist to perpetuate their own existence. And that's what you see in their constantly shifting policy platforms. And they may increasingly incorporate scientific principles and policies into their platforms. And university professors are not immune to these temptations. In, in other words, what I mean is they, they're more seduced by their tribal affiliation than the core principles of science. They don't know what they believe. I tweeted something recently about kids protesting in-person school and how I disagreed with that. And I think that they have been misled by the media coverage. And somebody said, you know, you don't think the teens can think for themselves? And I say, look, I think the world of teens, and I'm sure that many do think for themselves, but I want to point out that many quote-unquote experts, blue check marks, they're not thinking for themselves. They're merely going to the central tendency of the herd and following what people they know think. And I think very few people have actually independently appraised every single study on masking before they tell you what they think about masking. I know because we published that 25,000 word, 300 re reference article, uh, the working paper on this topic. And I doubt many people read all that because it takes a heck of a long time. And so when you take your cues from people you know it in your social circles and you don't independently appraise the evidence, I think it's very easy that you will start to succumb to tribalism. And also when you know you live at a time where all the other tribes that used to unite us are increasingly dissipating and vanishing um, and we're left with sort of political tribalism. And so I do worry science will enter the death spiral. The death spiral will be more and more things will become political. And then in the near term, we may even have a schism and we'll have two different bodies of science. I think that would be terrible. How might we go the opposite direction? It will take, uh, it will take putting people in charge who have the power to resist the voices of everyone. People who are born in the era of social media where you can just tune out what millions of people tweet at you and say and focus on what you believe. And you need to know what you believe. I was telling someone recently, you know, that uh, I know what I believe on all these issues. I know what I believe and I know why I believe it because I believe it because I did the work to figure out what I wanted to believe. And I don't take my cues from anybody because I don't have any loyalties to anybody. But we need a lot of people to do that. And we also need broad dialogues. The last thing I'm going to close with, um, a statistician from Harvard who I follow, who I really enjoy, Kareem, he made an interesting point that said, one of the things he missed throughout this pandemic was why wasn't there a debate on masking kids and opening schools and vaccinating policies, a debate with panelists from the best universities, primetime debate or posted on YouTube, a three hour debate hosted and moderated by people you know and trust. And I think the answer is because universities have absolutely abdicated their responsibility. It wasn't the job of a random Joe Schmo to hold such a debate. It was the job of Harvard or Stanford or NYU or Columbia, et cetera, prestigious universities hold these debate. And I think the reason they don't is that increasingly universities are 
beholden to their donors and their donors are playing this tribal political science game. And the more their donors play the tribal political science game, the more they are scared to even house the debate. And somehow we've entered this culture where uh, words are violence and ideas that you disagree with are harmful to you and it's getting all a bit much, but that's where we are. And when you're in that world, of course, if somebody comes along and has a grand hall debate on should we mass kids, they'll say even having the debate is contributing to someone being harmed. And sometimes both sides will say that, you know, you don't know which side's going to say that and then give an issue. But that is very problematic and we didn't have those debates and that's another failure and abdication of the role of the academy. And if these institutions, the universities, the major journals, they don't want to hold those debates, then you know what? They've, they've already, they're digging their own graves. The institutional reputation and credibility depends on them being able to take ownership of those dialogues. And if they don't, they will not be the institutions they were. They will decay and no one will care what they think. And science will be conducted by podcasts, by people who are willing to have three-hour dialogues with other people. And that will be the place, that will be the institution that rises. And, you know, as much as I love those dialogues, that's not what I want to see. I want to see these institutions regain their credibility. And I want to see science try to mend itself and mend itself by admitting uncertainty and by running prospective randomized trials more and more and more because that's what actually settles debates, not rhetoric. Testing won't save us. It's the title of my new Substack post, and it makes the case that testing, while it would be great if we had more tests available, and we really ought to, it's not really going to bend the pandemic's trajectory in this moment and likely not much in the future in the weeks and months to come. Here's why. So I know many people are concerned about the availability of testing, and uh, if you go to the pharmacy shelves, they're bare here. You can't find any tests. And I do agree. That's inexcusable. We're in 2022, and you cannot find a SARS-CoV-2 test. So my sympathy lies with people who feel ill. They're curious. What is it that makes me so sick? Is it Omicron? Is it SARS-CoV-2? Is it something else? And they can't get access to a test. And in fact, we've seen the lines in places like New York City are quite long. They're hours long. People waiting hours to find out if they have the virus. That's inexcusable. It's also terrible to be sick and waiting in a line that long. It's also terrible when people go to the emergency room, as my colleague Dan Morgan, ID doctor Maryland, says, just to get a test so they can travel. So now you're bogging down the emergency room with these superfluous tests. That's probably an unnecessary place for testing. It's probably going to be the case that tests for travel, international travel, they will someday be done away with, probably in the short term, because they provide more of a hindrance than they do provide a benefit. But even if you're talking about testing broadly, even if we had trillions of tests and your stockings were stuffed with tests, I do think there's some challenges with um, testing as a paradigm to bend the pandemic trajectory. And so let me walk you through that thinking. And it's also the topic of my Substack post, Testing Won't Save Us. I'll put that right there. So the first thing is sensitivity. Sensitivity means that if you're feeling a little bit ill and you swab yourself and test yourself, among all the people who are truly positive, what percent are detected as positive, that's sensitivity. And the problem with sensitivity for many of these assays is when you take the user, you at your house, and you pair it with a suboptimal test, you can have often poor sensitivity. And poor sensitivity means that sometimes the test is gonna show a negative result, but you're really gonna have the virus and actually be contagious. And this is the reason why we keep hearing stories, I suspect, of people who say, we planned a family gathering, everyone tested negative, they all came, all of a sudden we're all sick as a result of this gathering, somebody had a false negative result there. Poor sensitivity 
is a problem. It might be a problem with Omicron. It might be a problem with many assays. It's likely related to the way in which you swab and how thoroughly you do. And there may be a relationship between adults and kids. It might even have poor sensitivity in kids. This is going to be a problem. You're going to have a lot of false negative results. It might lead to maladaptive behavioral change. The distribution of testing. Nobody has really talked about this, but the distribution of testing is a huge issue here with testing. And it's probably the biggest reason why testing is not going to make much of a difference going forward. When you think back to the National Basketball Association's bubble, the NBA bubble, one of the things they did with testing was they applied testing in a uniform manner. Everyone had so many tests, there was a certain amount of testing, and we made sure everyone was in the bubble, and they got tested, and we distributed the tests. What does the distribution of tests look like in America? I suspect it's not egalitarian, it's not even, it's very likely to be skewed, a highly skewed distribution, a distribution that I suspect, and I speculate in this article, probably resembles the global wealth distribution, which is that most people have nothing. They don't have access to tests. My cupboards are bare, in fact. I don't have an access to a test readily. I'd have to go think of a way to get one. Some people have access to probably one to three tests. Some people may have had in their life less than five tests. And then there's a tail on this curve. And the tail is people who may have had hundreds of tests, thousands of tests. They may be hoarding tests. And just like global wealth, where many people have nothing and a few people have a lot, the testing distribution may be highly skewed. And what does that mean? That means that some people are getting a lot of information. Some of that information may be incorrect, either through low specificity or low sensitivity, more likely. And that incorrect information may be affecting their behavior. But a lot of people's behavior is not governed by any tests at all. They're going out based on the only test they know, which is, do I feel up for the task? And that is a way in which testing will be suboptimal. It will always be this way, I suspect. In the next year or two years, there's no plan in place to fix this. And as long as the distribution is so heavily skewed, it's unlikely to do, I think, any meaningful difference. The next point I make in this essay, testing early in the pandemic at least, and um, middle of the pandemic, um, it uh, is only useful if you can make better health choices. If you test positive and you're in a household with many members, you can go somewhere to recover and then come back when you are less contagious or not contagious at all. The problem is for many people, they don't have the resources to make those choices. And so testing cannot help you if you can't change where you go and what you do. So testing doesn't help in that manner. The other way testing is not helpful is we have, we always run a a difficult gamut of incentivizing testing, but not incentivizing it too much. By that I mean, if you're feeling sick, you should be able to call in sick and stay home until you feel better to avoid getting people sick at work. The problem is many people don't have that luxury. The other problem is if you start to think of ways to incentivize that, you might flip it a little bit too much and actually get people who weren't that sick or on the or, or weren't that contagious or not contagious at all somehow saying they're sick and not going to work. And so it's a very fine needle to thread in terms of broad sweeping policy. Um, and I, I struggle with that. Uh, I think that we ought to have better paid sick leave in general. That's true in all times. But in this particular moment, whether or not that single intervention would bend the pandemic curve, I think is tricky. The next thing I think a lot about when it comes to this idea that we'll test our way out of this is that are we really averting infection or are we merely delaying it? And with the rate with which Omicron is spreading with the dwindling vaccine effectiveness in terms of symptomatic infection, not severe infection where it appears to be still quite good, but symptomatic infection does dwindle. And I'll talk about that in another video, several new studies, and it's also a Substack post of mine. Will we be able to contain this? And I suspect the answer is no. The virus will inevitably sweep either in one pandemic wave or many more waves with diminishing, diminuting magnitude will sweep through the population. And so as long as that's the case, testing may only bend it a little bit on the margin, but is unlikely to change the broader dynamics. Finally, 
Testing creates anxiety and anchors the mind. This was the last point of my piece. And I think we have forgotten what happens when you build your mind around one thing that has central dominance and not all the other things that are important in life. And the more you test for one thing and not all the other things that happen in life, the more you become anchored to that one thing and life revolves around COVID-19 may not be the best situation. So these are the reasons why I think Testing is unlikely in the short term or the long term to bend this pandemic trajectory. It won't save us. And if you want to learn more, read my Substack. I'll put a link down below. The CDC is back. They got a new tweet. They got a new analysis in the MMWR and they got a New York Times story. They got everything they want. Here's their tweet. New CDC report finds children and teens 18 years and younger who've had COVID-19 are 2.5 times more likely to have a diabetes diagnosis after infection. Prevent COVID-19 by using tools like masks and vaccines for those eligible. So that's their tweet. What was their paper? It's a very interesting paper in MMWR, and I took a deep look at it, and I'm going to show you right on the screen. I've written about it on my Substack already. It's entitled, Does COVID-19 Cause Diabetes in Kids? The CDC publishes an embarrassing study. This study has got a lot of problems with it. So what do they do in this study? Well, what they're trying to do is they're trying to say, imagine you have a child, and imagine that child goes by the whole year without getting COVID-19. That's what we would all want. In a perfect world, that's what we all want. What's that child's risk of diabetes? Now imagine the same child is afflicted with, with COVID-19. What's that child's risk of diabetes? And that's what they're trying to answer in this study. And they use two data sets. They use IQVIA and they use Health Verity. And these are two insurance data sets. And for each of these, they pull out billing codes. So they say, who under the age of 18 over the course of the pandemic has had a SARS-CoV-2 diagnosis, a COVID-19 diagnosis. And who are all the kids that don't have that diagnosis? And then for every kid with the diagnosis in IQVIA, they match them based on age and sex. And for every kid in health verity, they do the same thing. They also get a third cohort in the IQVIA, and those are people who in years past, in yesteryear, they suffered from a different respiratory virus. And then they go forward and they say, so, here are the kids with COVID-19, here are the kids without COVID-19, two different data sets, and in one data set, here are the kids who had a different respiratory virus. What is their risk of a diabetes diagnosis within 30 days after they're coded as having a COVID diagnosis? And here's the answer. If you had a COVID-19 diagnosis in the first data set, a whopping 68 out of 80,000 people, or 0.08%, that isn't that isn't 8%, that isn't 0.8%, it's not even close to 1%, it's 0.08% ended up with diabetes. Among kids without COVID-19, that percentage was 132 out of 400,000 plus, 0.03. So we're talking about 0.05%, a very small number. Among those in yesteryear who had a different respiratory virus, it was 0.06. So that's a difference of 0.02, SARS-CoV-2 compared to other respiratory viruses in the past. Then they replicated this analysis in a different data set. Here they do something different. They don't just look at billing codes. They also see if somebody tested for COVID-19 and put you in one group if you tested positive and the other group if you tested negative. This is the Health Verity database. And they conclude 0.08 compared to whatever, 0.03 is 2.5 times as much. So you're 2.5 times more likely to come down with diabetes. What do I think about this? I think it's a problematic paper, obviously, because... As I told you at the outset, the goal of the analysis is to get a group of kids 
who had COVID-19 and a group of kids who in other respects are the same. They're just the same age, the same sex. They control for those too, but they have to be the same socioeconomic status, the same racial makeup, the same BMI, and all the other risk factors that go into getting diabetes. And if you compare these two groups of people, what's the difference in diabetes after COVID-19? What does COVID-19 do to your risk of diabetes? But they don't do that. They're not adjusting for race. They're not adjusting for socioeconomics. They're not adjusting for BMI. And those things are important determinants of both getting SARS-CoV-2, which may affect the most marginalized people in society and even slightly more overweight kids than, than normal weight kids. And also diabetes. Those factors also play into diabetes. They may also be more likely to become diabetic. And they're not adjusting for those values. So you're not finding the independent contribution of COVID-19. You're also learning about what might be the underlying risk factors that lead one to both COVID-19 and diabetes. I don't know why they don't correct for that. I really puzzled. Surely they have somebody's BMI. They could at least do that. Second, the second problem with this I talk about in my Substack is they don't have the true denominator because of all the kids in America who had COVID-19, how many have a billing code attached to them in an insurance data set that said that they had COVID? And the answer is even in the group of people covered by this policy, there's got to be many kids who had a little bit of a runny nose one day. They thought nothing of it. They never got tested. Some kids who felt a little bit sick and the parents said, eh, let's see if they feel better in the morning. They never got tested. They don't have the real denominator. So in the group of people so sick that they sought medical care and were diagnosed with COVID-19, the rate of diabetes within 30 days is 0.08%. So eight one hundredths of 1%. What about if you had the real denominator of all the people who didn't even go get tested, it's going to be much, much lower than that. So this is not the thing you need to worry about in life. If you're going to get COVID-19, there are other things to worry about, like being really sick with COVID. That's what you should worry about. You don't have to worry about getting diabetes down the road. The risks are really, really low. They're not giving you the real denominator, which will make the risks probably an order of magnitude or more lower. Next problem. Do they correct for ascertainment? So when somebody is sick and they meet the medical system, the medical system, we don't let go of people like that. We see them for follow-up over and over again. Make sure they're doing better on the mend. And in doing so, we order more tests. We get more chemistries. We check the sugar again and again and again. And we're going to find more diabetes the more we look. And so maybe those kids who are otherwise the same that we don't really have, but imagine the otherwise the same kids, if you screen them with as many blood tests as somebody who had a COVID diagnosis and recovered, you might find the same level of diabetes. Who knows? You might find something else entirely. The last point, the health verity thing. The health verity thing really killed me because they're including in the control arm people who tested for COVID who tested negative. These people might be even more dissimilar than sort of the other cohorts. For instance, imagine you were a parent wanting to go on a trip to Hawaii and you know they have that pesky policy of having to test negative and you look at all the, the book sites and they're all booked up solid and you know it's a rush on all those testing sites. So you just squeeze a visit in the doctor's office, get this kid tested, get a negative test and so we can go to Hawaii. You're going to be put in the didn't have COVID group, but that person might be very different than potentially the kid whose parents are essential workers who are working the night shift, who is in a multi-generational household, and that kid might develop COVID-19. And you're comparing these two kids to see who has a different rate of diabetes. But of course, one is a very socioeconomic advantage kid and one is a very disadvantaged kid. So that might even exacerbate that problem. And then the absolute risks really baffle me here because the analysis by the CDC shows that the rate of hospitalization was about seven-tenths of 1% if you have COVID-19. Um, that's an order of magnitude more frequent than diabetes. So if you wanted to give somebody something to worry about in a kid diagnosed with COVID-19 by a billing code, it would be going to the hospital because that's about 
10 times more common than developing diabetes in the next 30 days. You don't need anything else to worry about. You already got something to worry about. The fact that it's seven tenths of 1% and it also suggests that the denominator is not the true denominator of all the kids who had the infection because that would be subsequently lower. And you can go back and pull the paper from Germany to see, you know, what is the rate of hospitalization in a healthy kid? So when you put all this together, what am I to think? What am I to think? Uh, you pair this with the New York Times coverage and the New York Times coverage just puppets literally what the CDC says. It, it just amplifies what the CDC says. There's not an ounce of criticism there. Are we incapable of accurately criticizing scientific papers when they appear in MMWR, which by the way, is not known for the highest standards of excellence. As Marty Macri likes to say, some of the papers won't even pass a seventh grade science fair. This paper I put in that bucket, I really don't know at all. I mean, I don't know if COVID-19 causes more diabetes than not having COVID-19. If you take the same people who had it and who otherwise didn't have it, but could have had it, they're indistinguishable from these people based on all the covariates. I have no idea. I have no idea. And this paper doesn't help clarify that at all. Of course, the CDC uses this paper as another reason to say, you know, this is a reason to get vaccinated. But I don't think that this diabetes point is really going to tip the scale in anyone's mind. Um, there's already the hospitalization point. They could have emphasized that. It's 10 times more common. And also, it, it's not really relevant because what is the relative benefit of vaccines? That's been discussed heavily at their own Verback and AHIP meetings. They don't need this piece of scholarship to make the case. In fact, this paper doesn't have a group of people who are vaccinated, not vaccinated to show the impact of the vaccine. It's something else entirely. It's the risk of diabetes after COVID-19. So I don't understand why they're doing this. I don't understand why the paper is this way. I don't understand why the tweet is so sensational. I certainly don't understand why anyone would take this result at face value. I think it's probably almost certainly not true. It's probably exaggerated. It probably reflects the bias that the unfortunate kids who developed COVID-19, particularly in the first and second wave of the pandemic, are kids who are marginalized, perhaps more overweight of different racial and socioeconomic categories. They're more likely to develop diabetes than the counterparts who didn't develop COVID-19, whose parents could use their wealth to shield them from COVID-19 in those first two waves, um, and even into the third wave. Um, they're fundamentally different kids. And uh, when you take these kids and you keep doing blood tests on them in recovery, you're going to find eight one hundredths of one percent diabetes. Um, what would it have been if they didn't have COVID nineteen? I have no idea. Would it have been higher, lower, the same? I have no idea. Um, is the diabetes the thing I worry the most about? No, I worried about the fact that they were ten times more likely to be hospitalized. So I don't know why we're talking about the diabetes. So this is a terrible paper. It's not a causal paper. It wouldn't pass muster in most journals, and it didn't. Um, that's why it's not there. It's getting undue attention. It fulfills a part of the narrative. Um, but it is not really rigorous science. And so we have to be careful um, in an effort to get people to make the choices we want them to make. Um, we can't uh, pervert and uh, sacrifice what science is. And I worry that this is the kind of scholarship, if you would call it that, that does such a thing. So those are just my thoughts. And if you want to know more of my thoughts, you should subscribe to my Substack. That's where I give most of my thoughts. And if you like this video, you know what to do. Like, subscribe, comment, leave a message. This is the peer review of this publication were it to come on my desk i would have ripped it apart i peer review a lot of articles i didn't peer review this article but now i have so until next time i want to talk about today's meeting of the achip the advisory committee of immunization practices of the u.s cdc now, this was a very interesting dialogue about boosters, and ultimately, the recommendation is now in place for adolescents 12 to 17 years old. You should, not may, you should get a booster. That was how they ended their dialogue. That's how they ended their vote. 
I think like many experts, I have many thoughts about the way the dialogue was conducted and what precisely they hope to accomplish and where we are right now in this pandemic. Let's think about this decision. So this is for the cohort of 12 to 17 year olds who already have had two doses of the Pfizer product. Five months after the second dose, they're now saying you should, you ought to get that third dose booster. What justifies that decision? Well, we can think about it as benefits to society and benefits to an individual. So let's think about society and then let's think about the individual risk-benefit balance. Some people say that you need to think a lot about society. What is the net benefit of having a boosted population, particularly boosted adolescents, on the pandemic dynamics? What will it mean for the older person who's in the nursing home right now? Think about that. Take that into consideration. The challenge I have with that and the challenge that a lot of people have with that, and also the reason why the AHIP didn't spend a lot of time talking about that, is that that is really speculatory. It's really, really difficult to know what the impact of boosting or having a booster recommendation like this would be for the third party, for the person in the nursing home, for the older American, for the immunocompromised American. While it might make sense, and some people may say, you don't need to know much, it's gotta be better for that person, that is a huge assumption. It's a huge assumption, and there are lots of reasons why it might not be better. So I'll just give you some hypothetical examples. Imagine there's that 17-year-old who is planning a visit in four months to meet their 99-year-old grandmother. And right now, that person was thinking one month before that visit, they were going to get boosted so that they'll have peak antibody titers right around the time they're going to visit, maybe six weeks before they get boosted, and then they'll test themselves and go meet their 94-year-old grandmother and have this sort of visit that they want to have. Now, what might happen is this person is going to be compelled or recommended to get boosted in the, in the short term. They've just cleared their five-month window and they'll get boosted now. And so by the time that event occurs, they may not have the antibody titer that they would have wanted to have had they been able to push that out. So that's a way in which sort of a mandate or a policy that recommends something aggressively or has sets a, a time limit on it might actually subvert your ability to deliver the product when you want to deliver the product to have an optimal benefit. That's just one theory. The other theory is the bigger fact, which is that no one knows what the impact of these decisions will have on the broader pandemic trajectory. Just three months ago, nobody could foresee that there would be a variant like Omicron, which is incredibly contagious, which appears to, thank goodness, vaccines still provide good protection against severe disease and hospitalization, but which appears to be piercing to a large degree, the ability of vaccines to shield you from mild infection or symptomatic infection. That vaccine effectiveness is quite low in Ontario province data and data out of Denmark just today. So we don't know what the future will hold. We don't know what this booster policy may mean for the broader population dynamics. We can construct stories why it might help somebody, but I can construct stories like I just gave you an example of why it might be deleterious to a particular interaction in the future. And for that reason, we generally don't make broad sweeping medical decisions for individuals based on what it might mean for other people when the models and assumptions that go into that thinking are quite speculatory and uncertain. Um, that's all I wanna say about that. Now let me move to the topic of individual risk benefits. When it comes to the individual, the first thing you gotta think about is by doing this, will you reduce or avert severe disease and hospitalization? These are people who've already had two doses. They're going from two to three, or hypothetically, two, they're not being boosted. That's the, that's the hypothetical world, the counterfactual world where they're not being boosted. What are you doing for their severe, severe disease and hospitalization? The AHIP does examine data from Israel on what it means for severe disease and hospitalization. Now, we also pair that with data from Denmark. And so we do know that boosting 
at some ages and with some severity might reduce the risk of severe outcomes. But what we don't know is at this age and this level, does it do that? Because as you go in population data sets to the very youngest people, data becomes sparse. What does that mean? Both there there are fewer people in that ages who are enrolled in these observational cohorts, but also the event rates, the rate with which bad things happen, they get very less frequent. Of course, because they're young and healthy. So their chances of being hospitalized or dying are very, very low, particularly after two doses of vaccine. So when you have that situation, it's incredibly difficult to tell if there is a causal benefit of boosting in terms of a further reduction in severe disease and hospitalization. And I think they acknowledge this in the meeting. They acknowledge and struggle with this, although not as much as I would like to see them struggle with it because they allied it to some degree. But you ought to struggle with that because it's easy in medicine to assume you know the answer to that question. You don't always know the answer to that question. It's a very difficult question. And there are some broader principles of medicine. One is the idea that um, medical interventions have a sort of a benefit when you do them a few times, but as you keep doing them, there can be a, a diminution, a reduction of the effect size, and there can be a saturation effect or a plateau, or something can be on the quote, flat of the curve. These are terms that we've long used in biomedicine to describe this phenomenon, that just because a little bit is good, doesn't mean a lot is always better or commensurately better. So that's the challenge with severe disease hospitalization. The challenge with symptomatic disease is twofold. I think one it ha is that, is this the event we want to avert? I mean, is the goal of the next four or six months of the pandemic to try to reduce the number of people who have symptomatic SARS-CoV-2? If the answer to that question is yes, I guess I would wonder if this particular mRNA vaccine construct is the right construct, or do you need a different construct entirely, which many companies are actively pursuing with an Omicron-specific construct. But even that might not prepare you for the next non-Omicron variant that may creep up. But it appears at the moment that this construct... Um, does not have 90 plus percent vaccine efficacy. We can say that. Um, if you pool European and Canadian analyses, we're talking that it's rather modest. And what, that, what does it rather modest mean? That means literally that we all know people and we're gonna keep knowing people who have been vaccinated and taken some precautions and they nevertheless became ill symptomatically with SARS-CoV-2 and Omicron. Um, so is the goal to boost these people. When you boost kids, I have no doubt you're going to increase the mean geometric titer of the antibody. Um, and you may transiently reduce the probability of a severe infection while those titers are really high. Not severe infection, I'm just talking about symptomatic infection because severe infection is already kind of very, very low. It's hard to know if you can make that even lower, but you will certainly reduce the chance of a symptomatic infection in the short term. Is that what your goal is? Is that what the pursuit is? And how does one weigh that against the known and unknown risks of harm to these kids? And of course, the AHIP examined the most compelling, I think, adverse event, which is that some tiny fraction of these kids are going to experience myocarditis. We know that from Israeli data. It's not going to be as high as after dose two, in part because you are putting a big gap in time between dose two and dose three, but it's also not going to be zero either. And the other challenge is when you go from zero to one dose, you're getting a huge amount of benefit for severe disease and hospitalization. We go from one to two, you're probably gaining something. It's harder to put a number on that, but you're gaining, you're likely gaining something. When you go from two to three, whatever that something is, it's gonna be smaller. So this is a diminishing benefit in terms of severe disease and hospitalization, but what about myocarditis? When you go from one to two at the timetables that are currently recommended, you have the highest dose two incidence of myocarditis, that's true. When you stretch it out five months and do the third dose, you aren't going to be as high as dose two, I don't think so. 
but your potential benefit wasn't going to be as high as dose two either. It's going to be smaller, very likely, in severe disease and hospitalization. Um, so even less myocarditis might be enough to tip the scale. It's hard to know. Now, how would one know this in a perfect world? In a perfect world, you'd take you know, 250,000 kids and you'd do a, a randomized controlled trial. And you wouldn't take kids who didn't want to do it. You'd take kids who consented to participate in a randomized trial. And guess what? There's no shortage of those kids, actually. There are a lot of people who would consent to participate in a mega randomized controlled trial to answer this question. Why? Because there's huge interest among adolescents and their parents to, you know, do whatever is possible to alleviate the harms of this pandemic. I think they would be happy to enroll. Same for children. I mean, we've seen in the first weeks of having these available that millions of people receive them. I mean, there is a huge appetite to try this. The difference between trying something outside of a controlled study and trying it in a randomized fashion is the latter is much better at giving you an efficacy signal. It's letting you know if the net benefits outweigh the net harms. So back to this question. So here we are. The HIP talked a lot about how to think about this. And so much of their discussion was about if a kid gets sick with SARS-CoV-2, it's going to be a disruption to their school. It's going to lead to quarantines, etc. I think that's true, and you wouldn't want that. However, that's not the same thing as averting severe disease. That's averting a mild infection. And the other question it lends itself to is, are some of our policies around quarantine perhaps too strenuous, too draconian? And is it the policy that might need fixing rather than averting the event? that led to the policy being triggered. The next thing I would say is that what would happen if, and we don't know, but what would happen if we do engage in this boosting campaign and then six weeks down the road, six months down the road, there's yet another resurgence of Omicron, like the pandemic has gone to date, there's a peak and then a trough and then a peak, you know, we're going to get perhaps another surge of a highly contagious, uh, hopefully not as deadly variant. Maybe it'll be Omicron again. And if that were to happen, you know, you can imagine a scenario where you've got a boosted kid who then experiences Omicron as their fourth uh, 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 exposure to sort of a spike protein antigen, three shots and then an Omicron. Uh, but in the counterfactual world, they might have had two shots and then an Omicron infection slightly earlier um, than had they been boosted. And so over the broad arc of someone's life, if we are to believe, and I think most of us do, that this is an endemic virus very likely to infect and reinfect one person many times over the course of their lives, what are we really doing substantively by adding a booster now when that person may still nonetheless become infected in a short period of time thereafter? Um, because even in the Ontario province data, there are some people who've had three doses and they are still having breakthrough infections with Omicron. So putting all this together, I think when you think about these regulatory decisions, it is tempting and natural to try to think about the implications of this decision on other people, particularly older vulnerable people. I think you ought to hold back on that temptation that is highly speculatory and that has hitherto not been the basis of regulatory decision making. You need to focus on the individuals and what is the individual benefit and the individual risk and what is the potential benefits and what are the potential risks. There are known and potential benefits and known and potential risks. We know some of that. We don't know all of that. And when you focus on severe disease and hospitalization, it is a murky proposition. If you focus on short-term symptomatic infection, I think it is less murky, but the value of that endpoint is more dubious. So that's the regulatory puzzle. What are my thoughts on all this? I guess I would say that um, we are in a tricky place, I think. What you want is to be able to have a broad debate 
about whether or not this is the best strategy with experts in an open forum, free of censorship and demonization. But unfortunately, I don't think we're at that place. And I think there are a lot of people who have strong opinions, who have a deep expertise in this space, who are reticent. There are a few people who are, I think, publicly commenting. I think Walid Jalad, professor at University of Pittsburgh, is an excellent person to follow. He's a professor of drug safety, and he's been thinking about this issue a lot. I've been commenting on it on Twitter. I think um, it's, 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 it's a tough it's a tough place to be, and I really struggle with this one. And I think there is a natural temptation in times when people are afraid of minimizing the downsides to acting and having a distorted view of the potential upsides. And I worry sometimes that we're in that space right now. So when it comes to regulatory science and vaccine science, you need to operate with incredible caution you need to do what's best for the individuals in front of you right now. You need to always have policies that are in the best interest of the person in your office, the person in your room, the person you're advising, the person you're vaccinating. You need to also preserve long-term credibility and institutional credibility. If you lose the latter, you will have widespread pandemonium. You will lose institutional credibility and you'll have further and further dissent. And so you have to be very careful that you're not acting rashly based on your emotions in the moment and you are taking a more rigorous um, view of this issue. So, you know, these are my initial thoughts of this meeting. Um, I would have liked to see the Verbac. I think the Verbac has different members, such as Cody Meissner, who I've interviewed on this channel before. Um, I think the Verbac would have been a good um, person to involve in this. And I think it will be very tough moving forward when people take the CDC's should recommendation and turn that into concrete mandates with threats behind the mandate. And those mandates may include things like expulsion from school, expulsion from private school, pushing you out of youth sports, etc. And I think that's very, very tough. And we need to be very cognizant that we're not getting ahead of our skis on these issues. And I really think we need to have a much broader and open dialogue on this issue. So, that's it. That's this video. You know what to do. Like, subscribe, comment, leave a message. I'm hoping to try to outline how people should be thinking about this issue, which I think is much more important than the precise answer. And I, and I think it's really important that people see how you need to be thinking about regulatory science. Um, and if this is your first rodeo, which is for a lot of people, you know, maybe you need to take a backseat on this one. Some of us, myself included, have been in this regulatory science business for about 15 years, written a couple books on it, a few hundred publications. You can go pull them up. There's always a link below. Um, regulatory science is a tricky science. It's not wishful thinking. It's not hope springs eternal. It is a very um, empirical-based science where you need to tread cautiously. Is this a pandemic of the unvaccinated? I see that the president continues to double down on this messaging, that this is a pandemic of the unvaccinated and that's the key problem, those 30 some million Americans who have not received even one dose of the vaccine. I believe this is a problematic way to frame where we are right now in this pandemic. And let me walk you through my thinking on that. First, let's just talk about the age old principle of medical ethics, which is that even if you think something contributed to someone's healthcare condition, that's not a reason to blame them, shame them, deprive them of medical care in any way, shape, or form. If somebody had been a smoker for many years and has a tobacco-associated cancer, that's no reason to take that or hold it against them. If somebody has eaten 
unhealthy food for many years has a heart attack. We don't hold that against that person. And yet now we actually do see, including a Washington Post editorial, claiming that if somebody's unvaccinated, that perhaps they shouldn't get unemployment benefits if they're fired for being unvaccinated. That's a very dangerous game to play, trying to take things people did and hold it against them for social services. So I disagree with that. And I think this kind of feeds into that narrative. But let's put this aside. Let's talk about this pandemic. Is it really in this moment a pandemic of the unvaccinated? Well, there's a couple categories of things. One, there's transmission, which is how much of this virus is circulating among people, who's getting it. Then there's symptomatic SARS-CoV-2. Who's feeling sick? Who's got a runny nose? Who's got a sore throat? Who's sick at home coughing? Then there's being hospitalized with SARS-CoV-2 and having severe disease. And then there's even passing away from it. So we know very clearly that there are things that you can do to lower your risk of severe outcomes for SARS-CoV-2. Um, you can't control your age. Unfortunately, that's a huge risk factor. It's on a log gradient. You can improve your health. You can sleep better, lose weight, optimize your medical conditions, and you can get vaccinated, which is a huge risk reduction for hospitalization and death. We have a number of observational studies that show something like 10 times, 13 times the risk reduction in being hospitalized or dying if you were to be vaccinated versus unvaccinated. I do believe there's some confounding there, but I don't believe a confounding variable is so big it can have a tenfold difference in risk. So I think a lot of that is vaccination. It is the causal effect of vaccination. So vaccination does reduce severe illness and death. And I think that is pretty clear from that observational data, particularly for older people, particularly for older adults, where that signal is rather dramatic in observational data sets. Now, what about symptomatic disease? Well, now that we have Omicron, we have data from Ontario province showing that two doses of vaccine has a vaccine effectiveness of close to 0%. The third dose is 37%, which is rather meager. So when it comes to symptomatic infections, and you start hearing the reports of people who say, I've been double vax, triple vax, but I got sick with COVID. Well, that would happen with vaccine effectiveness in that ballpark. And so is being sick at home with COVID a pandemic of the unvaccinated? I think that's not really true in this moment. I mean, yes, probably. And in fact, you've just heard the numbers. Numerically, there's a slightly higher chance that that would happen to you if you're unvaccinated and have never had COVID than if you were vaccinated and never had COVID. The probability you'll develop Omicron. That's a 37% in that vaccine effectiveness study. But that's not a huge difference. It's not the tenfold difference that we see with hospitalizations and deaths. Finally, there's transmission, asymptomatic transmission. We just have no idea because the studies are really rather um, limited in many ways. They're not uh, robust. And I'll set that aside for a moment. So when somebody says it's a pandemic of the unvaccinated, that doesn't speak to people's experience, people who are at home and having symptoms. I think that that's going to happen a lot to unvaccinated people who don't have natural immunity. And it's going to happen substantively to people who are vaccinated. And we're seeing that all over the board with breakthrough infections. Hospitalization and death, that was what we always cared about. If this was a coronavirus that just had that other stuff, just had symptomatic disease and asymptomatic transmission, we wouldn't have even had an aim for it. We would have gone on with our lives. It's the fact that a small subset of people have hospitalization and death that makes this really severe. And is that a pandemic of the unvaccinated? I will concede that in this moment, that is a huge risk factor for um, people being hospitalized and dying is the status of being unvaccinated. But it's not always going to be this way. And by adding this label right now, you put yourself in a bad situation. Let me walk you through that. As unvaccinated people more and more meet Omicron, which they will because it's spreading like wildfire, those people are gonna develop natural immunity, at least the survivors will. And they may not be likely to get sick and hospitalized next year if they've cleared Omicron this year from a SARS-CoV-2 variant because they will have had some natural immunity to this sequence of virus, more or less, more or less. Um, in next year, you will possibly see that many people being hospitalized are people who have been vaccinated, but who happen to be older, who have medical comorbidities, who have underlying immunosuppression. 
So if you're going to call this the pandemic of the unvaccinated now, if six months down the road, and I'm not saying I know this to be true, I'm just saying it's possible that it is true. If six months down the road, eight months down the road, it is a pandemic of older, frailer, vulnerable people, are you going to start calling it a pandemic of the old, frail, and vulnerable? That seems rather heartless and it and, and rather unhelpful. And so I think that this whole strategy that the administration pursuing I'm baffled by it because what you want to do is globally you want to look across the people who are most vulnerable. You want to take the 80-year-olds globally, make sure they're all got one dose in their arm, and then let's go to the 70-year-olds, make sure they got one dose in their arm, and then let's go back to the 80-year-olds, make sure they got the second dose in their arm once we go all the way down the years. And then the last thing you want to focus on, I forgot to mute my phone, and the last thing you want to focus on, the last thing you want to focus on is very young people. You don't want to throw all your political energy in making triple vaccinated college kids sit at home all the time or sit in their dorm rooms. You don't want to put all your efforts into putting through EUAs for boosting very young people without any efficacy data, for instance. Those aren't the places you want to focus your energy on. You want to focus on older, vulnerable, frailer people and making sure they get the first dose in their arm. And so if you think about it as the issue is, the average person out there is unvaccinated. That's the problem. That's probably a misguided way. It's the vulnerable people who, even when they get vaccinated, they're maybe very vulnerable next year or next in the fall. Um, they're the people you want to focus on. And, and, and that's not to be pejorative. It's, not, it's nobody's fault that they got COVID-19. You know, I think that we've entered this false idea that people are somehow at fault. Um, it's not a fault uh, that you uh, got a respiratory virus that is a product of living as a primate. I mean, that's why respiratory viruses exist, because we are primates who need social interaction. We interact with people. And of course, it would be natural that a virus will eventually come along and take advantage of the fact that we have to be close to each other. That's part of what it means to be a human being. And that's how they have evolved. And that's why there's so many of them. And then to ask people to be puritanical and wear N95s and respirators and not see anybody for years on end, that's not being human. And of course, people won't be able to sustain that. That's not a failure of the person. That's life. That's being a person. So I think that the more we demonize and, and, and use this kind of rhetoric, we put ourselves in a bad situation. And, you know, it may be true in some places in the moment that the vast majority of hospitalized people are unvaccinated. That might not be true three months from now, six months from now, 12 months from now. And you don't want to paint yourself in the corner of calling it that. And what will you say down the road? And, and again, that may not be true also for symptomatic disease, which is, you know, still, I think, slightly more affecting unvaccinated people. I think that's clear from vaccine effectiveness data, um, but also actually affecting people who've had multiple doses of vaccine and boosting those people with a third dose that has a vaccine effectiveness in the Ontario province state of 37% that may even be short-lived. I'm not sure how much mileage you're going to get out of that strategy. So I would kind of encourage the administration to have a broad arc, think about this a little bit longer, um, to um, avoid the pitfall, which is that if you can portray the culprit here to be the tribe of people that includes your political enemies, that's sort of a smart political move. I don't think it's wise health policy. It's going to lead to more distrust and more problems with public health down the road. People have asked me what I think about the CDC's new change from 10 days of quarantine to five days. And for the time being, you don't need a test to escape quarantine. What do I think about that? Well, Here's what I think. I am an old-fashioned scientist, and when I don't know the answer to a question, I like to run a controlled experiment. So for instance, if I don't know that masking kids in school lowers the spread of SARS-CoV-2, I would have run a cluster randomized control trial. I'm an old-fashioned scientist like that. And since I don't know exactly what the precise 
optimal timing of ending a quarantine is, I would have run a cluster randomized control trial. You could try different strategies, and it could be five days with no test, five days with that rapid antigen test. It could have been 10 days. And the truth is that none of the surrogates we have, PCR testing, rapid antigen testing, they're not perfect surrogates for contagion, because contagion is both a product of the virus and how much virus is present to be spread, and also the behavior and the behavioral changes a person might make if they know they're recovering from SARS-CoV-2. So I think it is not intuitive. It's not clear that five days is going to be much worse than 10 days, etc. You can't figure it out from first principles. It's like so many things in this pandemic. It, the sum is more than the parts. Uh, the total is more than the sum of the parts. It is really how people behave with this information, what they know. That's more than just a simple test result. Are you safe or unsafe? Very possible that somebody who goes back on day six with resolving symptoms will take greater precautions, wear the mask more, wear an N95 or some mask that actually is sufficient and prevent transmission to other people. Other people might keep a more distance, a bigger birth from such a person. So I think we don't know the answer. And the right answer is cluster randomized trials. But I do think there's some important principles we can talk about. One, when you have wide scale home testing and you have many, many people, asymptomatic people, people who are storing and stockpiling these tests, testing themselves, you're going to get a lot of positive results. And some of those positive results might be in people who have very important jobs. They might work um, as transportation drivers. They might work in the food industry. They might work in healthcare. And if all of them go out, quote unquote, sick all at once, although by sick, I mean test positive results in the setting of asymptomatic testing, you're going to have some problems in running your business and running your hospital. And so what you want to do with this policy is you want to strike a balance between I think a sensible precaution, I mean, ideally you would test this to figure out how much of this is necessary, a sensible precaution, and also having an ample labor force. It is quite possible that under some circumstances, having a healthcare worker who is on day six of a COVID-19 test positivity or COVID-19 infection, that's preferable to having no healthcare worker at all. When you have a hospital gutted from healthcare workers, gutted and having no healthcare workers, you can get healthcare system collapse and you can have ballooning IFRs, ballooning CFRs for the virus, and you can have catastrophic outcomes for all sorts of things from heart attacks to strokes to et cetera. This is also one of the reasons why I was very apprehensive about using very very draconian vaccine mandates and booster mandates, particularly for people who had natural immunity, because I thought that the additional benefit of that little incremental percentage change in the fraction of people in this country who are vaccinated might be offset by the, the loss of a workforce that you desperately need as you're entering the winter months. So back to this point. I think one point here is that one of the purposes of this is to preserve some labor force. And if you go from 10 days to five days, you're going to free up a lot of people sooner. The next point is... The person who might give you SARS-CoV-2, yes, it might be the person on day six who has not yet fully recovered from their infection. It might be that person, but that person has several advantages and reasons why they might not be the person who gives you the virus. One, they know they have the virus and they may take greater precautions. Two, you might also know they have the virus. There's all those other people out there who haven't acknowledged that they have the virus. They've never tested themselves for the virus. I suspect that testing for the virus is not sort of a homogenous thing. It's not that all of us are going out there and getting five tests a month. In fact, that's not the case. I suspect that it's like the wealth distribution in this country. Maybe 40%, 50% of people have nothing. They've not had any access to these home testing kits. They don't seek testing. And if they were to get sick, they would do what we've always done when you got cold and flu-like symptoms, which is you live with it and you wait until you feel better. And if you feel really bad and you have to go to the hospital, then somebody might test you then. 
I suspect that's what a lot of people are doing. There's probably another fraction of people, 20 to 30%, who've had less than three cumulative lifetime SARS-CoV-2 tests. And then there's probably that tail distribution, just like wealth. A few people who you open their cupboards and they're filled with Binax and they're stocked to the brim and they're testing themselves all the time for dinner parties and for gatherings and for vacation and for travel, et cetera, et cetera. A few people are heavily tested. And so this is the distribution of testing. The distribution of testing is not egalitarian. It's not fair. It may not even be rational. It may be suboptimal in many ways. And if you insert on top of this, this restriction that if you test positive at any time, you're going to have to do all this stuff to come out of it. I think you have a problem. You have a disruption in the labor force and you have disruption among some people more than other people. And also, you're not really having a, a, a policy that's going to mitigate SARS-CoV-2 across the population because there's a huge chunk of people who, even if they felt pretty sick, they may not tell you about it and they may not test. The next thing, by shrinking the period of time, not only do you have an impact on a person's ability to propagate the virus, say, on day six or day 11, you know, you're changing that on the back end, but you're also changing the incentive to seek testing in the first place. Because if you are a healthcare worker, you're somebody who's in a job or you can't afford to take 10 days off, you may say, if I feel a little run down, I don't want to get the test. And by changing that and shrinking that, you might actually incentivize some people to get tested, which may actually slow the spread in the population. If that were in fact the goal that you sought to do. And I think it only makes sense in my mind, since this virus is endemic and will eventually reach all people, it only makes sense in my mind if by slowing the spread in a particular place and time, you can prevent healthcare system collapse. Um, the other things you can do to help prevent healthcare system collapse are, of course, have a more robust labor force. Start paying people more. Start getting people to your hospital. Start building additional units and capacity. It's amazing that we're this far in a pandemic and we have not invested in improving the capacity of hospitals. In fact, we may even be in a worse situation than we were in March 2020. And some of our draconian mandates that make us feel good about that we're doing something and sending a message may actually erode health outcomes more broadly. And I've talked about that in many op-eds or posts. So the last thing I'd say is that I'm not sure that the rapid antigen test on day five, if that's positive or negative, if that is actually the gold standard method to tell if you are actually infectious to another person. The gold standard method to tell if you are infectious to another person would be to run a cluster randomized control trial and measure different strategies of letting people out of quarantine and seeing what is the spread in those settings and groups. And it is possible, as I say, spread is more than just the amount of virus in the nasal mucosa. It's also someone's behavior, their patterns of movement, their patterns of interaction with other people, the precautions that they choose to take. And so for all these reasons, it is probably the case that shortening the quarantine period will incentivize people to get testing, will have people come out of quarantine taking some precautions. Those people are likely less likely to get you sick than the person out there who is currently sick and hasn't acknowledged that because they've never been tested or they feel fine. That's the person you really ought to worry about. And much of the hullabaloo around this issue is that there are a lot of people out there who are really anxious and they're anxious and they believe as in addition to the anxiety, they believe that they can live the rest of their life and never encounter this virus. I think that's not true. I don't think they can live the rest of their life and not encounter this virus. Not if they want to live life in any way in which any human being would want to live life. You might if you seal yourself in a bunker and only wear an N95 at all times in all settings in all social contact, or if you choose not to interact with people for the rest of your life, but that is an impoverished view of living. And so I think that they will likely not succeed in that goal. And once you 
realize that that's not the case. What you can do is you can do things to lower your risk of bad outcomes when you were to encounter this virus. And that, of course, is for most adults, vaccination. It's also, I think, all the usual things you think, which is lose weight, improve the management of your medical conditions, get better rest, get better exercise. Those are all things that are likely to be in your favor when you do encounter the virus. That's the risk reduction. Then there are things we do that are theater, that delay the time until we meet this virus, that push it out three months, or that, that don't even push it out. Um, they're pure theater. And the pure theater I think of are things like closing ice rinks and wearing masks outside. That's pure theater. There are a few things that actually do delay the time until you meet the virus. And I think that is wearing the N95 or these very strict and consistent precautions around quarantine. But as I said, you know, I really don't know the impact because they're not very consistent. There's probably a lot of people who will just not get tested and they will not abide by quarantine restrictions. And then there's some people who will be heavily tested and abide very strictly. And and insofar as there's a huge chunk of people who don't abide by it, you may not do anything for the pandemic dynamics. And also, I'm not necessarily sure what the goal of changing the pandemic trajectory is when you've offered vaccination to all adults uh, in a society that has made clear that people are have decided if they're going to continue to take this very seriously or not. And if you go around this country, you will find that there are a lot of people who said enough is enough. I've done my part and I don't want to participate in any further restrictions on my ability to live life. And so that's that's the country we live in. So closing thoughts on this issue. Closing thoughts on this issue are, you know, if we lived in a sensible country with a CDC that was running appropriately in the 21st century, you would imagine that they would run a few cluster randomized control trials. They would have tested face shields and cloth masks and surgical masks and N95s in different settings. They would have tested some masking policy in kids in cluster randomized trials. There wouldn't be all this endless debate and rancor about these issues because we would actually have science weighing in. But since we don't live in that country, we live in a country where people say they, quote, follow the science, but they never actually conduct any randomized control trials. We have to make a decision about this policy choice, which is perfectly amenable to randomization without any randomized control trials. And it leads to all these first and second order speculations. And so I think they are probably striking the balance in the data-free zone of being a little bit concerned that Omicron will obliterate healthcare capacity in a lot of places. And so they want to shrink that time down, but they also want to keep some amount of time so that they don't have people coughing all over the wards. And that's where they landed on five days. I don't suspect it's based on any stronger science than that. They've had a difficult time articulating that because one vocal contingency online are the most fearful and anxious people who would prefer that it goes from 10 to 15 or 20 or 25 days. They'd be perfectly fine with expanding it, but they're not so fine with any sort of trade-off. Um, and that speaks to their policies on schools and that speaks to their policies on other issues. They don't want any trade-off at all. Their goal is minimizing virus spread at all costs, even if it doesn't make sense from a broader point of view. And they have, you know, the CDC has stepped in their path and this, they're feeling it. And so now they're getting they're getting it from both sides. I saw someone tweet that uh, Rochelle Walensky wasn't the right person for the job. I don't disagree, but I disagree for different reasons, not because I think she's not doing ex enough excessive things. Uh, maybe she's done too much um, and not really articulated her reason and fallen prey to some cognitive biases and said some things that weren't true. That's my view. But this person sees it the other way. So on this issue, I think they're making a call if they were sensible, they would have run some controlled studies. Unfortunately, they're not. And so the call has to balance these issues. And it's natural for people to be concerned about all this thing. But like I said, I think the most likely situation is that the person you don't know has COVID is the greatest threat for you to get COVID. And that really shouldn't be your greatest worry in life. You are eventually going to encounter the virus. The thing you can do to control it is 
get vaccinated, lose weight, improve your medical conditions, get better sleep, you know, all the things that have always been true. Once you do those things, I don't know how much longer you want to live in a impoverished existence, but I think, and I look outside and I see many people have decided they no longer do. So until next time. There's a new preprint out now that you got to know about. It's entitled The Risk of Myopericarditis Following COVID-19 mRNA Vaccination in a Large Integrated Health System, Comparison of Completeness and Timeliness of Two Methods. The lead author is Dr. Katie Sheriff, who is a graduate of the University of Chicago Medical School. She was just a couple years ahead of me. She is an infectious disease doctor, and she practices at Northwest Kaiser Permanente, which is Kaiser Permanente Portland. And this is a brilliant analysis that takes advantage of the data set used by Kaiser Permanente, which is a a very robust data set that follows all of the people that Kaiser provides health insurance for and medical care for over time. And here's what Katie Sheriff and colleagues do in this very remarkable preprint. What they do is they ask, if you were to look at the estimate of myocarditis and pericarditis that has appeared from the Israelis, you'll find something in the ballpark of one one in 3,000 to one in 5,000. And if you look at the estimate that is repeatedly presented to the advisory committee of the US FDA, the VRBAC, or even at the CDC's HIP, you will find an estimate that's a little bit less frequent than that. And there's a huge debate online. You can go online and see people arguing tooth and nail about what the precise estimate is. I have always felt that the Israelis since their estimate is in line with the Norwegians, is in line with other nations that have robust healthcare systems, including Hong Kong, that that estimate is very likely to be true. Katie Sheriff proves that in a US-based healthcare system. That's what she does in this paper. So here's what they do. In contrast with the method used by the CDC to ascertain rates of myopericarditis, they just use ICD-10 codes and they use a certain set of codes. Katie Sheriff goes beyond that. She uses both those codes, but also she searches the free text of all hospital notes. She's searching the free text for myocarditis and pericarditis and pulling those notes out where they may not have been coded with a certain billing code, but they may have had that language in the documentation themselves. And by doing so, she's able to find additional cases. There's one more thing she finds. She finds that there's a billing code, an ICD-10 billing code of myocarditis unspecified that the CDC method does not use, but her method has found, and that is linked to real cases of vaccine-induced myocarditis. All the cases are reviewed by experts, and they're confirmed to be confirmed or probable myocarditis due to vaccination. So her strength is that she's using a search of the electronic medical record that goes beyond the ICD-10 codes. But there's one more thing she does. She also looks to see what have somebody got the vaccine within the Kaiser Permanente system, and then this kid happened to go home, and they had chest pain in the middle of the night, they were rushed to the local hospital, they're not in the Kaiser Permanente system, and that hospital took care of them for myocarditis or pericarditis, and then later that hospital submitted a billing claim to Kaiser Permanente. And she's able to pull those out and find that there are additional cases she can identify through that method. And those bills submitted to Kaiser often come at a delay. Some even come more than 30 days after the hospitalization. So what does this have to do with the CDC method? She is showing you two ways in which the CDC's method likely underestimates the risk of myopericarditis. One, they're missing an ICD code. Two, some encounters use this language in the notes that don't have relevant ICD codes. And three, some people were hospitalized outside of surveillance center sites, and those bills are still being processed even 30 days after vaccination. And so there may be an increase 
increase from all these three sources together. And the net result is her estimate is remarkably consistent with other nations' estimates. For men between the ages of 12 and 17, after dose two, she finds an incidence of 377 per million, which is roughly one in 2,700. For men between the ages of 18 and 24, myopericarditis is roughly one in 1,900 much more frequent than what the CDC is using to make their decisions and what Verbeck is using to make their decisions. And that's the insight of her paper. Risk of myopericarditis following COVID-19 mRNA vaccination, large integrated health system. It shows the deficiencies, I think, in our current passive surveillance system, relying too heavily on ICD-10 codes and not using that free text language. She's able to bridge all of this in a very elegant paper. This has direct implications for everything we're talking about these days. It has implications for mandates around going to school, what we're going to do with young boys, the booster decision that we're poised to make next week. Again, in the absence of a verback, I hope they have an A-chip on this. I hope they have some advisory committee to discuss this. This is important information for all these groups. It also harmonizes the despair, the disparate um, estimates. You know, we have seen that some countries have reported higher estimates. Ontario province, Norway, Israel was higher than the U.S. estimate. People think that these estimates are somehow different. I'll tell you what, they're probably not that different. People are people. We're the same flesh and blood over there on this. We are over here. It's probably very similar. What it really tells you is which nations have good, robust surveillance systems and which have surveillance systems that have holes or flaws or limits or could be improved upon. And that's our system. So I like Hong Kong. I like Ontario. And I like this paper. I think it's probably closer to the truth. And I also think that preprints that came along the way that had estimates in this ballpark that were disparaged online were unfairly disparaged. And I feel bad for those authors. So until next time. I'm back to talk about a new preprint. It's out now. It's the same investigators who are the author of the Nature Medicine paper in the United Kingdom looking at rates of myocarditis after vaccination with Chadox 2, Pfizer, Moderna, and infection with the virus. And they have compared those rates before. We've talked about it on this channel. I've shown you the figure from their Nature Medicine paper. Well, on Twitter, they naturally got many questions about their paper. And one of those questions was, please, please break this apart by sex. We all know the increased risk of myocarditis most pronounced after vaccination is in men rather than women, particularly men under the age of 40, particularly men 16 to 24. That's the peak age group. Well, they are back. They have a new preprint out, back by request. And I will just show you the figure. I'm going to put it up here on the screen. I'm going to lean over so I can put it up there. This is the figure, and it shows really clearly that when you look at myocarditis just in this group, men under the age of 40, it is crystal clear. Pfizer, dose two. Pfizer, dose three. Moderna, dose one. Moderna, dose two. Have rates of myocarditis greater than the rate of myocarditis post SARS-CoV-2 infection. That's it. These vaccines, these doses, dose two Pfizer, dose three Pfizer, dose one Moderna, dose two Moderna, and the Chadox, which I'll set aside because we don't use that in this country, that's used in the UK. But the mRNA vaccines, dose two, dose three Pfizer, dose one, dose two Moderna, have rates of myocarditis in men under 40 that exceed the rate of myocarditis after natural infection. That's an important point. That's a vastly important point. This paper, of course, it's still an underestimate. The denominator for vaccines is known. It's the number of vaccines you put in an arm. The denominator for infection, here they're using people who have tested positive in the system, but that's not everyone. We all know there are people who have gotten sick with this virus who didn't go seek testing, and they're not going to be in the denominator there. As you add those people in the denominator, that number is going to get smaller. That red bar is going to shrink a little bit. Okay, well, that's just what's going to happen. Someday they might correct that. The other thing they're not doing here is they're not separating out 
12 to 15, 16 to 18, 19 to 22. I'd love to see that kind of separation because I suspect, and I believe there's a lot of data that supports this, that 16 to 24 will be the peak demographic. It'll be the most unfavorable there. What does this mean? I think this is, this is incredible information. It's information we should have. It's information that's going to, I think, irritate some people who've been saying the precise opposite, but it's information that I think is necessary. And I wish that they hadn't have said those things that they had said, that infection has to have a higher rate of myocarditis. It doesn't have to. There's no have tos in this world. You need to look at the data in a sober and empirical way. What does this mean? I think it means a few things. One, we have now seen in this country that there is a push for boosting 16 and up. I think we need to acknowledge that there is market uncertainty in that age group of 16 to 35 to 40 men, what the risk-benefit balance of dose three is. Um, we don't yet have robust data showing that the dose three in that group can further lower risk of hospitalization, which is already quite low from the first two doses, and how to weigh that against the risk of myocarditis, which is naturally going to occur with dose three. I think that's a very difficult regulatory gamble. I've written about that on my Substack many times and um, in other places on MedPage Today, et cetera. And that's a, that's a sort of place that we're gonna have to keep thinking about. And Waleed Jalad is an excellent person on Twitter to follow the University of Pittsburgh professor um, on drug safety. The second thing I think is that uh, we could have done things that I think could mitigate this risk. You know, we were, it doesn't have to be all the vaccines all the time at whatever schedule the company devises or no vaccine ever. It can be something sensible in between. Try to get the best benefit of the vaccines and mitigate the harms of the vaccines. What might that mean? If we had invested in spacing out dose two, if we had invested in preferring Pfizer over Moderna in men under the age of 40, um, if we had rethought a little bit about the evidence we want for boosters and maybe think about boosters a little bit differently in young men, um, these are all sensible things a society can do. And they're things that other societies have done. Germany has suspended the use of Moderna in men under the 40. Um, other countries have extended the time interval between doses, such as is going on in Norway. Um, and we have data from the Canadian group that looks at myocarditis when you extend the dose. And it appears that uh, dose extension is associated with, I can't say it's causal because it's a non-causal paper, associated with the reduction in myocarditis rates. Finally, uh, the US FDA, they have a clear, easy safety correction they could make, and that is Moderna in men under 40. No, no. Let's prefer Pfizer. Let's just say Pfizer is the de facto in men under 40, not Moderna. Don't say they're equal. Say Pfizer's preferred. That will lower the rates of myocarditis in that group. That will improve outcomes for those people. You took a long time, FDA, to get your J&J &J situation straight, uh, which now J&J &J is the second tier vaccine officially by guidance. It is we prefer, we prefer Pfizer, we prefer Moderna, then J&J. &J. Um, we can correct this right now. We can correct it at the FDA level, we can correct it at the CDC level. There are two ways it can be corrected. Um, these data are of immediate interest. They are a vital interest. I mean, I think it's important to correct, I think, a uh, misconception uh, a, a unique type of misinformation because it's misinformation that serves uh, what is thought to be an honorable goal. And so it's tolerated. That misinformation is that the, vac the virus will always cause more myocarditis than the vaccine. Simply not true. The UK data shows conclusively for dose two, dose three Pfizer, dose one, dose two Moderna. It's absolutely not true in men under 40. The rates of myocarditis after the vaccine are higher than after the virus. If you made the corrections that we thought should be made, it might even look even worse. Um, what does this mean about the choice? And I think 
people struggle with this. They say, well, of course, myocarditis is not the only thing that the virus can do. Of course not. And um, and uh, but myocarditis is the most salient concern for mRNA vaccines uh, for particularly for men under the age of 40. Yes. Uh, so how do you weigh these things? And I think every time you do an analysis, you have to say, you know, having had one dose, what is the potential delta benefit for the second dose versus the potential delta adverse events for the second dose? Having had two doses, what's the potential delta benefits from the third dose versus the potential potential delta AEs for the bad dose? You know, what's the change in adverse events? What's the change having had the two? And that's a very difficult calculus, especially when you don't have lots of randomized controlled trials with a lot of people in that age group. What we do have is Israeli data, um, which I think is quite compelling. It's in the New England Journal of Medicine, but that Israeli data by their own admission, the authors say that the event rates are very scant in younger ages, making it very difficult to come up with point estimates for what is that additional benefit from boosters in those younger ages. So thus we have a dilemma, which is how does one weigh, I think, um, more precise estimates of vaccine safety events against more tenuous and more uh, unreliable estimates of vaccine efficacy as one moves down the booster train at different ages and based on different comorbidity patterns and by different sexes. And I think then you got a tricky regulatory question. You got a tricky question in terms of medical science, in terms of medical policy. And something that I like to spend a lot of time thinking about. And we publish a lot of papers in this space. And it's easy to be seduced by a poll that more is always better. Uh, push the dose, push the frequency. It's got to be good. In fact, that's almost the mantra of medical oncology for many decades is that, that was the, that's always the right answer. And that's what a lot of people are gravitating to when it comes to vaccine science. It's also easy to succumb to another poll, which is none of them are necessary at any age, which is also, I think, a very indefensible position um, and uh, dangerous. And then there's the sensible middle ground where we used to all live, but it's harder to find people here. It's called sensible middle ground, where what you do is you maximize the benefits of vaccine products. You try to minimize the downsides or harm. When you're alerted to an AE and that AE appears to be in the same ballpark or greater than the risks of bad outcomes from the illness itself, you immediately uh, put all your attention on that, try to generate more credible data and try to clarify that space. Uh, that's not what we see going on right now. It's what we ought to be doing. I think uh, this is a huge and tenuous issue. It's a very important issue. What's at stake, of course, is the current pandemic, what's going to happen in the next few months. That's at stake. Naturally, that's at stake. What's also at stake? I think the future of public trust in science, um, probably for 20, 25 years, it'll probably be that sort of generational lag and any poisoning of that trust, any error here, um, if you make a regulatory gamble, you turn out to be wrong. You turn out to actually have recommended something that's a net decrement for some people. You're going to pay the price. And that price is not just a short-term price. It's a longer-term price. And that longer-term price is very difficult to measure, um, but can be quite catastrophic. And loss of trust, I think, is an incalculable harm. It does harm not only in the short term, in the long term. Uh, unfortunately, the places I think I've been most critical of our policy has been the places where I feel like people are betting with future trust, and that's trust that they don't have the right to bet with. And it, by them betting with it, uh, they're going to make it a harder situation for other people down the road. So these are my thoughts on this paper. It's a very important paper. I think it does show and does dispel a misinformation myth that is sadly an accepted one, which is that the virus always produces more myocarditis than the vaccine. Clearly, that's not the case. It's not the case for dose two dose three Pfizer. It's not the case for dose one, dose two Moderna. Moderna has way more myocarditis than Pfizer. Moderna has more myocarditis than infection itself. And this is infection, I think, largely assuming that you've not gotten any of the vaccines. What is the trade-off between getting that 
extra dose, the Moderna booster in this country versus the risk of bad outcomes. Were you not to get the Moderna booster if you're a 16-year-old man? I think that's a very uncertain proposition. It's a proposition we need to think about more carefully. I don't see anyone thinking about it clearly. So those are my thoughts. Important paper. Good for these people, actually. December 14th, they put out their Nature Medicine paper. They got some feedback online. And by request, they already have the preprint out. Good for them. These UK investigators, you did a good job. You're doing a public service, actually, reporting some useful information in a time of crisis, even though many people might not like that information because it conflicts with their preconceived biases and narratives. And they're not looking at the issue empirically. They're looking at it emotionally. And that's always a recipe for foolhardy medical decisions. So this is what you get on this channel. You get uh, technical appraisal, the medical information by somebody who is an associate professor of epidemiology and biostatistics who's been doing this for quite some time and published a few hundred papers on this topic and uh, see this as an objective scientific issue. It's not an emotional issue. It's not an issue we need to, you know, panic about. It's an issue we need to look at the data soberly and, and make the best assessment. And uh, there's a central area, like I say, called sensible medicine. It's where many of us have been living and practicing for many decades. And I know that the internet is really focused on the extremes, but sensible medicine, you know, we're going to, we're going to be back in style someday. We're going to have, uh, we're going to be back in vogue. You know, people are going to love us in sensible medicine. They're going to say, Hey, you know what? There's some nuance here. There's some trade-offs. There's some sensible medicine. There's some middle ground. You know, we're going to be back in vogue. So until next time. I want to talk about my new Substack post. It's entitled, What We Are Doing to College Kids is Total Madness. The subtitle says it all. College campuses are escalating restrictions on those least likely to need them. Now, this is really total madness. The more I follow this issue, the more concerned I get that our policies simply don't make any sense. And there's a reporter out there, his name is Michael Tracy. I cite his coverage of this. He's been following some of the most draconian restrictions. And those have happened in the United States on college campuses. Now, what should I tell you about this? Of course, in the, in the entire United States, 99.99% of people are not on a college campus. We're out there in the real world and we're doing lots of things. And there are very little restrictions on personal choices people make, like meeting up, small gatherings. There are some restrictions on when and how you can eat dinner and what are the rules in the restaurant, but not too many. And we're going about our lives as best as we can with some of these restrictions and some things that may not make a lot of sense, but we're all going about our lives. But college campuses, that tiny 0.001% of all people, these kids are facing some of the most draconian restrictions on their ability to do daily things. And in this essay, I talk about some of the things that they're facing. You should know. These aren't just anybody. These are young, healthy people. So already their risk of SARS-CoV-2 bad outcomes is very low. Not just that. They're often double vaxxed. In fact, many colleges have vaccination requirements, so they're double vaxxed college kids. So their risk was low to begin with. It's even lower after double vaccination. And not just that, some of them are boosted. Some of them also have natural immunity. Doesn't get much lower than that. They have maximal risk reduction in terms of all the things they could possibly do. And what are they facing? Well, to start off, mask mandates, prohibitions on how many people can get together in a room. And recently, some colleges even restricting the activity. They can't go out of their room when they don't have a reason to do so. They can't engage in so socialization with colleagues, and some are even going remote in January. This makes no sense. It makes no sense at all. And in this essay, I talk about why it makes no sense. Now, there are three broad categories of things. There are the things you can do to reduce your risk of bad outcomes when you encounter the virus. And those are the things I mentioned. It's uh, vaccination and improving your health or underlying medical problems, and maybe weight loss. Those are the things in your control. Age is a potent risk factor for SARS-CoV-2 bad outcomes. The unfortunate thing is none of us can change our age. We can't turn back time. So those are the things we can modify. Weight control, 
and vaccination, pretty much it. The second category are things we do that might delay the time until we meet the virus. Now, of course, if you lived in a bunker and just ate canned food, it would delay the time until you met SARS-CoV-2. But eventually you might run out of cans and you'd have to surface and engage in society and you might encounter the virus SARS-CoV-2. College kids, some of the restrictions that they face, I suspect will delay the time until they encounter the virus because these restrictions are so draconian. They are so prohibitive that they will do, that it will work to delay the time till they meet the virus, but they're not going to get away forever. They may meet the virus on vacation or on summer break or next semester. They're gonna meet it eventually. And when they do, all that they could have done is optimize category one. Category three are those things that we spend so much time talking about. They're the reason why I wear a cloth mask when I walk from the door to the table at a restaurant, but then I don't wear it an entire time at the table when I'm drinking and eating and laughing with colleagues, and but I have to wear it when I get up to go to the bathroom and come back, of course, that's when it works, and I have to wear it when I walk to the door. This is ludicrous. This is a ludicrous policy. It doesn't make any sense. It's very unlikely to slow the spread of the virus. I've talked on this channel previously about the randomized control trial data. We've published a large systematic review of this topic, but there is no study to inform just wearing it when you walk in from the door to the table. It's also kind of farcical to think that it does much there when everyone sitting in a restaurant is not wearing the mask for most of their visit there. But these are the things we engage with, this kind of theater. And there's more theater that I detail in the post. And in fact, arguably, and history will someday reveal that perhaps most of the things we did are theater. They didn't even slow the time until you met the virus. With that backdrop, what are the restrictions on colleges doing? They're really in the second bucket. They may delay the time until they meet the virus, but delaying only makes sense for one of two reasons. At an individual level, it makes sense to delay if you're going to do something to your risk, your category one, that's gonna change between now and then. So for instance, in 2020, when I was unvaccinated, I didn't want to meet the virus. And if I could push that out till after I was vaccinated, good for me. That's better for me. The next reason it might make sense to delay is if a health system is facing a crisis. There's a huge surge of patients, and it might make sense for some people to have tried to delay so that we can spread those infections over time. This is the classic flatten the curve idea. But that second rationale doesn't hold a lot of water for colleges because as I said, they're just a tiny fraction of all the people in the country. They can have the most restrictions, they can all go in bunkers, and it would likely do very little to the overall pandemic trajectory because all the other people out there in the city who are going to restaurants and shops and the ballet and going to parties and medical con conferences and congresses, um, they're gonna go about doing their thing, and they are doing their thing. In fact, I see pictures on Twitter of hospital workers having holiday parties while college students are facing the most draconian restrictions. So. For both these two reasons, it doesn't make sense for them to engage in prohibitive reasons to delay. One, there's unlikely to be an individual health benefit to them by delaying. They will have the same very great odds when they eventually encounter the virus. And two, there's unlikely to be a broader societal or population benefit. You may think about the faculty and staff on these campuses. Again, I think that even if the students on the campus followed the most harsh restrictions, it won't change much of the risk for the faculty and staff who will face most of their risk when they go home, when they go to the supermarket, when they go to the movie theater, when they meet up with people for a holiday gathering. So it doesn't make sense there either. I really struggle with this. I think we are, we are doing something that is really harmful to these kids. Let's talk about the downside. All interventions have downsides. This has huge downsides. You're taking young, healthy, 20-some-year-old people who have already done everything they possibly can, often including vaccination, boosting, or having recovered from the virus itself, and you're asking them to put their life on hold for some good you cannot articulate. It's not a good to them, and it's probably not a good to anyone else. And putting your life on hold at that age has a huge consequence. It has a mental health consequence. When you are young, 
all of the wonderful things about being young have to be done in close proximity to other people. And often you can't wear a mask. So that's the, that's the truth about youth. They have to be close together. That's part of what it means to be young and all the fun things you did required. When you look back at your photos from college, it, you were close to somebody, I promise you. Otherwise you didn't have a lot of fun. So we're taking that away from them. And for what? For what benefit? For some silly policy that I don't think serves any broader purpose and is incredibly, I think, harsh to the kids. It will harm them. It'll have a net health decrement in the world. But also, it's a failed promise. I mean, when they got vaccinated, the promise was, if you do this, we will give you your life back. That was the promise that many colleges made, the implicit contract. They've taken away that promise. They've taken away that contract. And I think that's, that's, that's really very inadequate. It's deeply problematic. The last point. Why are the college kids putting up with this? Why do I not see reports of more protest, more uh, pushback from students? And I can only surmise that there's a few possibilities. Um, one, I think they may actually be misled into thinking that what they're doing is serving some greater good, which is theoretical at best and very unlikely to be true. Two, um, there's an increasing relationship between political valence and restrictions. So people most left of center favor the most draconian restrictions and people most right of center favor the least. And I worry that the youth, of course, always has leaned left of center. That's the nature of being young. Um, and then time grinds you down and you drift over. But the nature of being young is being left of center. And honestly, on many issues, I'm still right over there. Pharmaceutical drug policy, read my books. Um, but I think that the left has, since it has adopted many of these policies, restrictions are almost uh, almost an amulet held by the wet by the left, um, a badge, a, a sort of tribal identity that they may be clinging it to for that reason. Um, and then the third set of reasons that I think they might not be protesting as much as I would expect them to is that they we may be in a culture where. You know, all of the things that we thought were wonderful about growing up in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s, like myself, um, 80s and 90s, um, the idea that young people can push back on authority or push back on rules or restrictions they think are unjust, as we did on many issues, which I'm not going to get into on this video, but many issues. Um, maybe the youth of today no longer feels like they can do that. They live in a world where people are watching what tweets they put out when they were 12 years old and holding it against them the rest of their lives. And maybe they feel like they just can't say what they think about these things. And to me, that would be even more crushing than all the other reasons. You know, the idea that they don't know that this is probably not offering a net benefit. The idea that they're doing this is sort of some misguided sense of political, political allegiance. The worst to me is that they feel like they can't even speak out. So I think it's a terrible situation. What we're doing to college kids, young people, it's total madness as I described in the post. I think it will do serious harm. It will have a net health impact. That impact won't be positive. It will be negative because mental health is part of health and it's a deep part of health and it can lead to, you know, all sorts of bad things. And it's a very unpredictable thing. Uh, when you play with mental health like this, you're squeezing a balloon. You don't know where it's going to expand and you don't know what's going to happen. The unintended consequences can be quite drastic. The unpredictable evolutions that may occur are, are beyond your comprehension. We've never done this. I would say, don't do this. <laughs> Stop it right now. Um, the virus, we all are going to eventually encounter it. It is an endemic virus. The best thing you can do are category one things to improve your odds when you do. Um, it does make sense under some circumstances to reduce or delay the time until you encounter the virus. It doesn't make a lot of sense in these circumstances. And it doesn't make sense that one population, ironically, the population who probably faces the best odds if they were to encounter the virus, is shouldering the greatest burden. While everyone outside of the college campus is living life more or less rather normally, with a few slight modifications. 
that are often inconveniences, like wearing the mask from the door to the table, which serve no purpose. Um, so I think it's problematic, and I think more people need to articulate why it's problematic. And then my post concludes with an apology. It's an apology that I've been kind of adding to a few of my posts lately on Substack, which is a real apology, which is that I am sorry. I'm sorry that, um, you know, I'm an associate professor of epidemiology and biostatistics. I'm a practicing doctor, written books, and I've published 300 plus papers. And I think I'm good at evidence appraisal and I'm good at thinking through these kinds of policy issues. In fact, my expertise when people used to ask me for a decade is my expertise is policy. And I guess I'm sorry because I feel like I have failed. I failed a lot of these people because uh, I, I wasn't able to use my influence and leverage and uh, and ability to persuade others to actually have halted some of these policies, written many op-eds, um, and some may have made some movement on some issues. I hope, I believe so. Um, I do think they did, um, but it wasn't as much as I would have liked. And I do feel maybe, and I will look back and I'll think about what I could have done to have pushed harder on the issues that I think were wrong at the time that they occurred. So it is a real apology. I'm sorry to the young people. I'm sorry you're going through this. It doesn't make any sense to me. And uh, I only study this for a living. So until next time. I want to talk about my new op-ed. It's out now in stat. I encourage you all to read it. I'll put a link down below. It's entitled, At a time when the U.S. needed COVID-19 dialogue between scientists, Francis Collins moved to shut it down. This is something that happened over the last week. Due to a Freedom of Information Act request, a number of emails have been released. These are emails from Francis Collins to other officials at the NIH, including Anthony Fauci. And let me just read you the email so you'll see why I'm so concerned. Hi, Tony and Cliff. See and it links to the Great Barrington Declaration. This proposal from three fringe epidemiologists who met with the secretary seems to be getting a lot of attention, and even a co-signature from Nobel Prize winner Mike Levitt at Stanford. There needs to be a quick and devastating published takedown of its premises. I don't see anything like that online yet. Is it underway? Francis. Now, why does this bother me so much? And why did it stick with me and led me to write this op-ed? And the reason is because Francis Collins has been, for a long time, the director of the National Institutes of Health. He, in that role, is an important figurehead and also somebody who steers the direction of science funding. But what he is not is he is not the pope of all scientists. He's not infallible. He doesn't decide what's truth or fiction in the scientific world. Francis Collins, like any scientist, is entitled to his opinion on policy matters, such as whether or not we should have lockdowns, whether or not we should have school closures, whether or not we should close bars or restaurants, and whether or not we should have extra precautions in nursing homes. But he doesn't know the answer to all those questions. In fact, no scientist knows the perfect answer for all those questions at all times. We all have our views and our opinions, and there'll be more research to come. When the Great Barrington Declaration authors put forth their recommendation, they did so with a strategy. Their idea was focus protection. This came out in October of 2020. And they said, in contrast with what we've been doing, which is really a one-size-fits-all restrictions, broad sweeping lockdowns, and people largely staying at home, what we need to do is focus protection on vulnerable people, elderly people, particularly people in nursing homes, and there are huge swaths of society that we can restore. For instance, schools. That was a big part of their initial push, restoring schools and in-person education. When Francis Collins finds that such a petition has received thousands of signatures from scientists, what is he supposed to do? I think there are a few options. What I would have done if I were the NIH director is realize that, well, there's a sizable contingency of scientists who feel that our policy program is not the best, and maybe there's a better path forward. There's also some scientists, and they were equally vocal. They wrote another memo a few days or perhaps a week later called the John Snow Memorandum. They felt the opposite, that we need one-size-fits-all restrictions until a vaccine would 
come. And at the time, they didn't know that the vaccine would be coming in November with the press release from Pfizer, but that's what they wrote in their, in their rebuttal. And I would say that, look, maybe it doesn't have to be all one thing or all the other thing. Maybe there's a lot of stuff in the middle that we'd all agree on. And I would think that, you know, the right way to do that is to host a series of open scientific forums, roundtables, policy discussions, get people with diverse interests and point of views together to talk about this stuff. You can even post the videos on YouTube. The public would have had an insatiable appetite for what real credentialed scientists thought about this. In my mind, the wrong message would be to call them fringe epidemiologists. I don't know what that means. I certainly don't think they fit that bill, even if they were to hold a view that not many other people held. But the truth is, nobody actually knows what all scientists believed in that moment because there were two petitions. They received a fraction of signatures from scientists of all the scientists out there. And most scientists, their views are unknown. I have no idea what most scientists think. I still don't know because we never really surveyed them. So Francis Collins could have set up a series of public forums of debates in that year to flesh out this issue and maybe to meet on a lot of issues. Here's what I think that all these groups agree on. I think all of the groups would have agreed in October of 2020 that we should be doing more in nursing homes. We should be testing all of the employees. We should even perhaps paying them large amounts of money to sequester them and have them literally be residents at a nursing home, perhaps for a two week stint or one month stint, pay them handsomely so they could live on site, create sort of a place for them to stay. And so that they're not rotating between nursing homes, which is a recipe for spreading the virus. There might have been many other precautions we could take in nursing homes, such as an aggressive campaign to improve ventilation. And perhaps even we could have said that while we're running that Pfizer randomized control trial, perhaps we should make a separate randomization for nursing homes. We should create a large registry-based RCT like recovery and just start randomly assigning all the nursing home patients in America to vaccine Novax. We might get a signal really quick. And the moment any of these trials gets a signal, we'll cross everyone over to the effective product. We could have proposed that. I think there's a huge place they would have agreed on in nursing homes. The other place I think that these groups and all scientists could have agreed is schools. We were in such a fiasco with schools in October 2020. Some places had opened them. It was largely going pretty good. And a lot of places were closed. And that had nothing to do with the number of cases per 100,000. Nothing to do with hospitalizations. It had everything to do with who that district voted for. And if it was right of center, it was much more likely to be open than if it was left of center. And the strength of the teachers' unions, if they had a strong union present, much more likely to be closed than if they didn't have a strong union. And that's irrational in the sense that it has nothing to do with the virus. It's not the biologic or scientific answer. No policymaker could defend such um, variation in school reopening. And that could have been another place where people could have come together and said, look, we do know a lot about this virus in kids, and we do know that healthy children have very, very low rates, and we do know there are huge casualties and harms of them missing school, and perhaps that's something we can all agree on. And then there might have been areas where the people really disagreed. Should colleges have been reopened in the fall? They were largely closed. I think the GBD authors would have argued they could have been opened, but I think a lot of other people would have pushed back and said no, and I think there's some legitimate tension and trade-off between the health of the kids in terms of getting sick, you know, it's not zero at that age, um, but also their mental health, their well-being, and we all know teenagers and 20-year-olds need to socialize, need to interact, and now perhaps we're facing the brunt of depression that comes from prolonged social deprivation. Francis Collins could have had that forum. He had the pulpit. He had the bully pulpit for such a thing. But instead, his immediate response to this is we need to quick and devastating takedown. And he goes on the shows and he said a lot of disparaging things, including accusing them of being fringe epidemiologists. But whatever that means, you've never actually surveyed what people think. So you don't know who's fringe or who's not fringe. Perhaps you're fringe by believing that most people and most scientists favored prolonged one size fits all lockdowns. I don't know the answer because I haven't seen any survey of what scientists thought. I think it is a problem. It's a problem that this email came out. I think it, it hurt my feelings about what was going on inside the NIH. The NIH is not um, meant to be a policy organization. It's meant to be an organization that fosters broad scientific thinking. 
I think many of us for many years have worried that they had too singular a focus on genomic medicine, genomic oncology, of which Francis Collins led serious efforts in, and he did some good. You know, he helped sequence the genome. But having an overbearing singular focus on genomic oncology might have underfunded other parts of oncology that needed funding, and so that might be a potential bias. And for me to now see that such a person would be so comfortable, I think, pushing back on things that he personally didn't agree with, it leaves me with doubt about whether or not the funding was as egalitarian and fair as it ought to have been. Because your role as NIH director is not to pick and choose what you think is successful. It's to fund science broadly and to allow for the fact that a lot of people, smart people, are going to disagree with you. And you should still fund them or encourage them or hear them out. On this issue, I find it was really problematic because... You know, from that moment to today, we know what happened. Anyone who touched Great Barrington Declaration became kryptonite. Uh, Johann Ludwigsen, who wrote the New England Journal paper about the safety of schools, it was always accused that since he signed the GBD, he was biased. That data was not fair or truthful. The truth is that data has withstood the test of time. It was totally accurate. We could have learned from it and reopened schools. We made a grave mistake. I think other people like Cody Meissner, who signed the document, forever was tarred and feathered with that when he was making very astute points about vaccine safety. And the people who created the GBD were forever accused that there was some conflict of interest or some nefarious movement of money. They were really in it for money. That charge has largely not borne out. I don't see that this is a document produced through conflict. It is produced through a certain ideological belief. They believe what they believe. And just as the people who have the alternate view of hashtag zero COVID believe what they believe. But I don't think either side is really in it for the money. Of all the places in this whole ecosystem, I think the most perversive role of finance is probably for the testing and maybe for perpetual boosting. Those are the perverse places. But for the initial vaccination, for these kinds of things, I don't think that the financial bias is the driver. I think it is either a worldview or people following the data in the case of vaccines, which is clear. Um, so Francis Collins, you know, he took this stance. He had an opportunity and he wanted to squash them rather than hear them out. And that to me, it set the it set the the, the first domino for all that fell and what has fallen. I mean, I think both sides, the hashtag zero COVID side, the, the GBD authors have just been constantly demonized. Um, one side has received uh, unfair, I think, death threats even. Uh, maybe even both sides have received unfair death threats or, or, or personal um, attacks. That's not right. Uh, and the truth is probably most scientists are not at some extreme end of this spectrum, but rather somewhere in the middle. I think most scientists probably felt like uh, no district should open a bar before it opens a school. I think no person in America could defend opening a bar over opening a school. I mean, I can understand you want both open or you want both closed. But if someone thinks the bar should be open and not the school, I really struggle with that. I think that's almost an indefensible position because of the societal benefits and harms and the risks to the people who go there because to elementary school kids is much lower than people who attend bars. Um, but I do think you could argue for both open or both closed. Um, but the middle ground, which is what happened in a lot of places, was very problematic. I'm really troubled by this. I think even now in response to my essay, I saw many people digging in why the GBD authors were bad or they're the bad people, they're the wrong people. I cannot believe that we're this far in the pandemic where we just don't see the true answer, which is that smart people will disagree on unprecedented decisions. They always have, they always will. It cannot be the case that everyone you disagree with is ill-motivated in it for secondary gain or a bad person and that people you agree with are the right people, true and noble. That is just such splitting. The world doesn't work that way. The world is gray. There are ambiguities. There are trade-offs. People are pulled by different directions, including true belief, but also the desire for fame or money or all these other things. And they vary in different situations. Conflict of interest is well documented in certain spaces in the biopharmaceutical 
industry, it's less well documented with unprecedented changes to global economies. I think nobody would have been a winner if the pandemic raged unchecked and there was a rising casualty death toll. Nobody would have been a winner. Nobody is downplaying the pandemic just to make money. But what I do think is some people genuinely believe that huge parts of the pandemic response were disproportionately punishing poor, vulnerable young people. And that harm is not harm that you see. It's not visible in the New York Times ticker, but it's harm nonetheless that will continually accrue for decades and lead to severe dysfunction in this society, in this government, and in global politics. I think this has been an incredibly perturbing event. We have not yet seen the full repercussions of it. And in such a moment, when you're the NIH director, you're one of the few people, you know, I think about the deans of public health schools like Hopkins, like Harvard, the NIH director, you're one of the few people who have the power to say, we're going to have the town hall. We're going to hear the voices. We're going to let people push the ideas in different directions. We have the reputation to house this debate. Um, it can't be done by random people on Zoom. It needs to be done by an institution. And all these institutions failed. They failed because they didn't host these debates. I can count on one hand the number of real debates I heard between different policy positions in 2020. One was a debate that Howard Boschner ran for JAMA. Congratulations, Howard. That was a great debate. Unfortunately, Howard has now been terminated from that job. There was another debate run by Stefan Burrell, spectacular Hopkins, a great dialogue. And there was a third one I saw that was from Stanford that was in the wake of Santa Clara by Jonathan Chen. He hosted it. He did his best to moderate, but it was quickly very vicious and very personal. And that happens when people are they themselves afraid of their own safety, I think, which is what happened to a lot of scientists. They became not themselves because they themselves were worried about their own health and well-being. And I think you're, of course, should worry about your own health and well-being, but you can't do so so much that you can't be objective about this. The people who wrote GBD, they're not uh, all the bad people. The people who signed the other memo are not all the good people and not vice versa. They're all a mix of people with different views and biases and worldviews and background knowledge. And the person who was in the position to bring them together and say, hey, I read this petition. I don't agree with all of it, but you know, this guy's at Stanford, this person's at Oxford, this person's at Harvard, and it's signed by a lot of people, including a Nobel laureate and people I respect like Cody and, and Johan Ludvigsson in, in Sweden. And maybe maybe the answer is we just need to actually have some open dialogues. Maybe there are a lot of people with other views and other ideas. They're not even putting them out there because they feel a little bit nervous that if you put an idea out there that the crowd doesn't like, that they're going to tar and feather you in the town square. And I think that's exactly what happened behind the scenes. They worked and they went forward with you know media interviews saying that this was a fringe position. To say something is fringe, you do need to have data on what the consensus view is. They don't have that data. So I do think it's a mistake to say that. You perhaps could have had the fringe position. It's bad. It's all bad. It's beyond bad. It's terrible. I think that I even somebody who commented about my article said that it was uh, it, 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 it is the softest touch on this scandal. It's a deep scandal. I think history books will look back on this and see it as a huge problem that that we weren't able to have that dialogue. Um, it was the original sin of the pandemic. It was the sin of all the policy. You know, people respond, somebody responded to it and said that, you know, we just needed a coordinated strategy. Well, to have coordination, you have to make people feel like they were heard, that a compromise was really the compromise position. You can't just by fiat say that you were right and they were wrong without even giving them a podium and that they're fringe and that their videos or, you know, messages on social media must be purged or deleted. You're not going to build a consensus. And of course, in a world and a country that is very decentralized with power that moves in many places, you're not going to have a coordinated response. And one state will do the exact opposite as another state if you don't get the buy-in at the outset. And getting the buy-in is the role of the institutions. It's the places that are able to bring people together and create some consensus. We still don't have it. We still do not have it. 
I've seen very little forum to debate, I think, the key issues around, you know, how should mandates be used? When should they be used? Should they be used around schooling? Should they be used to exclude children from school? I've written about that on my Substack. I'll put a link to that below. Um, there are a lot of open questions. They're not black and white. Anyone who thinks they're black and white is simply not very knowledgeable on the topic. They're gray. Life is gray. People are gray. This was a bad call because what this said was, we know who's right and we know who's wrong. When most people should have said, I don't know for sure. I have my gut inclinations. I don't know for sure. We've never lived through this. We've never done anything like this. And to me, that was what it was. That's why it was a failure. And so I guess I'm disappointed. I'm disappointed that uh, when we needed better of our leaders, we didn't get it and we got this email. And um, I think if we go forward, we have to be very careful about the solutions to the pandemic. The solutions are going to be, there's so many secondary solutions about what are the powers of the state and when can they do what and how should they deploy and how should we fund public health? And I continue to believe that we should fund it more, not less, and we should be more proactive rather than reactive. But we also need to have a real debate about what does it mean to tolerate ideas that conflict with ideas we hold in a sensible way to make progress and maybe meet in the middle and that life will always be full of compromises and particularly in times of crisis we should all maybe take a step back and acknowledge that we might be right we might be wrong um and 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 as long as you lose human interaction when we become postage squares to each other on zoom meetings we depersonalize and dehumanize each other and so the authors of gbd don't feel like real people they feel like evil villains in this fake world of online twitter and op-eds and zoom squares but they're real people and they have a real view and they didn't reach it by accident i don't think they were bribed or cajoled to reach that view i think they reached it honestly through their own experience and you may not even think they're right about everything, but maybe on some things they did have a point and you missed that point in your broader desire to tar and feather them. And that maybe that wasn't good because by you doing that to them, it so easily allowed others to do it to you. And you ironically had furthered the division that you now lament as it is directed also in your direction. And so I encourage people to read the op-ed below. I think this was probably one of the biggest stories that happened over the last week. Of course, no one's covering it. That's why I wrote the op-ed. Um, and I think that this will be a major historical lesson going forward. Thanks for listening to Plenary Session. Plenary Session was produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. Plenary Session is not medical advice. The views and opinions expressed on Plenary Session are those of whoever said it. Until next time.